Hello, and uh, welcome to the first installment of Metastation Summer Vacation. Uh, for, for those of you who are, uh, who are regular listeners or past listeners to Metastation, uh, you may have seen on our Twitter, this is a, a fun new summer project that we're doing where we're going to be doing, uh, some shorter kind of limited run coverage of three different mini series, uh, that are excellent in our opinion for summer binge watching. And today we are starting with the first three episodes of Good Omens, which are in the beginning, the book and hard times. Um, if you're new to Metastation, uh, welcome. We're thrilled to have you. Uh, my name's Claire. I'm a writer in Portland, Oregon. And I'm Erin. I am an English professor in Mississippi and uh, Claire's regular podcasting partner for those of you who are new to Metastation. And we have been best friends for t- almost 20 years. Yeah, very at this point. Close. Yes. Yep. Uh, and, uh, and really enjoy yelling about books and television and science fiction and, um, plot tropes and ships and all of those things. So, um, yep. so if this is your first time listening, we are thrilled to have you. We've been covering the CW sci-fi show, The Hundred, for a couple of seasons, and now we're branching out into covering some other things that are sort of in line with that same set of, of interests. We love sci-fi. We love, weird philosophical theological brain twisty stuff um and we love ships and ladies uh so this summer <laughs> uh we're going to be covering uh good omens first and then russian doll on netflix followed by gentleman jack on hbo um they're each about 6 to 8 episodes so the podcast will be in two parts covering the first half and the second half so uh Please feel free to binge along with us if you have already watched these things when they came out and you want to watch them again. That's also great. You can find us on Twitter to yell at us more there at at MetaStation100. Um, and yeah, we're super excited to try something totally different and uh, ramble on and on for hours and hours about really nerdy stuff in a totally new context. So this <laughs> is super fun. Also, Claire is really, really happy to Catholic out yes yes <laughs> to theology yes out. i am <laughs> i am yes if you're um if you're new to us you'll you'll get to know us very well over the course of us yelling about television because we also talk a lot about our own lives but um i uh i am a gay catholic and i was a youth minister for almost 10 years so um anytime we get to yell about religion and all of its weirdness i am thrilled and good omens is particularly interesting because I guess sort of predictably, and maybe this is a good sort of entry into kind of the overall sort of plot setup. Um, I suppose it is not super surprising that conservative Christian folks find this miniseries objectionable to the point of a massive petition asking Netflix to cancel it, which is, <laughs> which since the show does not air on Netflix, it airs on Amazon, um, was perhaps <laughs> even more ineffectual than it would ordinarily be. <laughs> um, but I, I think, you know, I think for, 
for a property. Most I'm assuming most people, if you know, if you're watching, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably have watched the show, which means that you know that this was uh, the miniseries was derived from a book by Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman that was published in 1991. Um, Terry Pratchett, of course, has since passed away, but Neil Gaiman um, wrote this adaptation and had a very strong hand in kind of translating it from book to screen. Um, so, so I think it's always been, you know, sort of a, a cult favorite book, but now, of course, that it's a huge miniseries with every British actor that you love in the whole entire world in it. Um, you know, the, um, the Christian right is very unhappy about it. And I, and I think what I think is interesting about that is like, I actually, um, I love this miniseries and I really like this book and I don't in any way see it as something that is like, I do not perceive it to be a work that is against religion or against the concept of religion. I think it has some very specific criticisms of organized religion and bureaucracy and corruption and sort of moral, you know, dogmatic bullshit and things like that, which I also don't enjoy. Um, and we'll get into more of that sort of <laughs> thematically as we go. But, um, but it has, I, I, I saw that and I was kind of like, I, I guess I'm not surprised that people who didn't watch this and don't really understand what it's about <laughs> are mad, but it is funny that they're mad at Netflix. Um, yeah. So, and, and I do think like, you know, as, as a fan of both Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman as writers, you know, if you've read a lot of their work, um, they're both writers who are or were very interested in faith. You know, mm-hmm. like not, and not necessarily from a, from a, like a, a, a per, from a perspective of a particular religion or adherence to a particular faith, but in like, you know, the idea of faith, like what, what is faith? What does it do? What mm-hmm. is its powers, both for good and for bad? Um, and they're both writers who are very committed to, you know, questioning, <laughs> you know, like, human systems and mm-hmm. how they go wrong and how they fuck up and the ways that we create, you know, like hierarchies and bureaucracies that um, wind up making things worse in often absurd ways. And, you know, so this is kind of like in, in many ways, it's like Good Omens has always been this like perfect Venn diagram of the ways that Pratchett and Gaiman both approach those questions. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and I and I do you know like one thing I love is that um, Neil Gaiman did such a good job of kind of like preserving Terry Pratchett's voice and humor mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. in the way that it was in the book um, and uh, you know just like, again like from the standpoint of like if you don't know us getting to know us um, I'm personally like I, I say I'm agnostic because mostly out of a sort of like acknowledgement that this is something that that can't actually be proven one way or another I'm I'm really mostly atheist but I'm I'm also a person like I, I am very interested in faith and I'm very interested in theology and I'm very interested in the ways that human beings, you know, need faith and spirituality and the ways that we sort of, and, and also the ways that we come up with elaborate rules that we, then we, that we then become like intensely attached to, to the point mm-hmm, of absurdity. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Which is yeah. Like much of this is about, you know, it's like, yeah. it's like, this is, this is a story that takes as a starting premise that there is a God and that there is one particular, um, sort of religion or religious, uh, tradition that, that is actually true. And it's the Christian sort of Judeo-Christian one. Um, 
But, you know, but from that, starting from that premise, I think a lot of this, and we can get into, I think we're going to get into this later or as we go along too. I think a lot of the story kind of is thinking about what happens when, you know, people, and in people I'm including like angels and demons, you know, um, when people kind of create these systems of rules, uh, mm-hmm. and then, and then their faith becomes about those systems and rules rather than whatever sort of truth they were created to, to honor. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, like when, the, when the dogma, when the rules, when the, you know, like when, when, you know, when prophecy or when predestination sort of takes on its own momentum. I, and I find all that stuff, like the thing that to me about theology and, and, uh, you know, in my, in my, professional academic life uh i study um my phd is in 18th century literature but one of the things that i have written a lot about and thought about a lot about is religious writing and theology and and sort of the ways that um and i'm really interested in the ways that people kind of like these rules come up and then people just are like okay well you know like this rule exists so like i I gotta reconcile its contradictions Mm -hmm. so i'm just gonna here I go, tying myself in knots, trying to reconcile these con- you know, all these contradictions. Um, <laughs> so, like for me, it's like I, I really, I've always really sort of loved connected with the story and love the story. Like I read it in high school for the first time, but even you know more as an adult, just because it kind of is grappling with a lot of those questions, those those issues. I think. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting. Like if you, it's a it's sort of a fascinating kind of companion piece in a lot of ways to. I mean, the sort of uh, the the kind of most obvious, you know, comparison obviously is, is you know, is to American Gods, um, which is the other, you know, high profile Neil Gaiman adaptation currently on television. And to which I do have to say, like, I don't know, like, what ritual sacrifice or selling his soul to Satan or whatever that man did. But, like, he's had, like, almost 100% success with quality screen adaptations of his work, more so than, like, any <laughs> other writer I can think of. Like, American right. Gods was good. Coraline is good. Stardust was good. It's like, Jesus Christ, I don't know what he... Anyway, but um, <laughs> but I think, but with American Gods, where the sort of foundational premise is that, like, Gods are created by our belief in them and weakened mm-hmm. by our loss of belief in them. You know, it's a like the theological framework of like how the concept of God works is obviously, you know, like totally different in those two universes. But that sort of, but that kind of central question, like you said, of um, humans creating and then adhering to systems and how those things evolve as we evolve. Um I think is is core to sort of both of those stories, you know, like in American Gods, mm-hmm. part of the the sort of arc of the story is the the sort of fading away of these ancient ancestral immigrant gods that came to America, um, you know, or or you know, were born in America, you know, with the advent of civilization here on this continent or came over with settlers, um, in favor of newer gods like technology that sort of spring up as human beings sort of develop these near spiritual kind of allegiances to new forces in our culture and our lives. And, um, and so, and, and that sort of the way that that kind of lays against good omens being sort of this fundamental clash between this plan that was like in place from, you know, between God and Satan from the beginning of time and the way that humanity has evolved to a point where, 
um, you know, characters like Crowley and Aziraphale feel like, you know, like maybe we don't like maybe we don't need to stick to the plan as it was written. You know, like in a in a really weird mm-hmm. way, it reminds me of like I was thinking about like when you were talking about about the sort of human systems, I was thinking about like like how I met your mother and like TV shows where like there's an end game in mind when they wrote the pilot and the show evolves past it. But they're like, well, we, but, but we always knew how it was going to end. Ted has to get together with Robin. So yes, we're going to just totally. jam the pieces together into like, it's not going to fit or work or be satisfying, but God damn it. We decided before right. we even begun that Ted and Robin were end game. <laughs> so now we have to like haul all these pieces around and shove square pegs into round holes to make it fit. You know, it's like, like as opposed to sort of letting things be what they are, you know, and in, in Good Omens, the evolution is sort of negative. Yeah. I was, I was just thinking the, the sort of the war and, and people destroying each other and the like sort of burning down of everything. You could read it as a very compelling allegory for fandom. (laughs) (laughs) And fandom's relationship to Endgame. Crowley and Aziraphale are like, I reject your reality and substitute my yeah. own. <laughs> and, Crowley and, and Crowley and Aziraphale are the central non-canon pairing. Yes. Um, who are just sort of like, well, we are just completely in love, but like that ending wasn't written. So I guess we're just going to be like rolling along, trying to stop the end game that was written from the beginning, but now doesn't work. <laughs> So I guess that makes Cro- what, like Crowley and 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 Aziraphale would be like what like Robin and uh, Barney. Yes, exactly. Yes, the the ship that that should have been but wasn't. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they do get a happy ending insofar as one is possible in this universe, which I think is very nice. But although we're not yes, there yet, yes, definitely, yes, yes. And this is, by the way, just to sort of make it clear right now, we both ship Crowley and Aziraphale very much. And neither of yes. us are particular. Like, I, at least I'm not, I don't, I, I'm happy with the ending. I did not need, I did not feel mm-hmm. like I needed them to like make out or whatever. So, mm-hmm. um, so, so my jokes about that are not a prelude or a <laughs> reference to any form of saltiness about. Right, right. It's nothing yeah. but pure joy for me. Yeah. And I think, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's just delightful. And I do, you know, like it, it's something that, you know, obviously has like, has come up a lot in, in interviews with the cast and, you know, and the creators mm-hmm. since the show happened. And, you know, it's, it's sort of funny. David Tennant, I don't, I guess, have as, as clear of a sense of sort of where he's at on it. Like Neil Gaiman is very much of the sort of, seems to be kind of of the reading of like, you know, they, he perceives them as being like, you know, like they're an angel and a demon. They're asexual beings. So the relationship was not mm-hmm. written as romantic, but he's not stopping anyone from shipping it. Whereas Michael Sheen, mm-hmm. like, fully is out here reading slash fic and like, <laughs> you know, it's like, oh yeah, they're in love. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can tell Michael Sheen played it the entire time. He's like the captain of the ship. Yeah, oh yeah. Michael Sheen, like, oh my God. Like, even just watching, you can tell he was playing it like, like, like Aziraphale is just like pining and wishing to make out with Crowley at any given moment. The hard eyes are so real in so many scenes. So real. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, but I think Neil Gaiman would, and actually like as I I appreciate Neil Gaiman as as a creator, I think that's a uh, he takes a pretty good position I think where he's basically sort of like this is the way that I wrote it because this is the way that I see it, but also 
if you like, if you think they're in love and that after the show ends, they're like up there doing the angel demon bang, then like, whatever, go for it. Like, I know, I see exactly what you mean, you know, so I think he's, he's, he's good about kind of leaving it open and being fine with people doing what they're going to do. But I, I, I sort of like, I guess I, I, I mean, there are, there are traditions of, you know, angel sex like uh in paradise lost mm-hmm. when um michael comes down uh and spends like an entire book of the poem talking to adam just like asking or, or a- answering quite adam's questions about you know like the nature of creation in the universe and god and stuff like that um and adam asks him about like you know do angels eat do you do whatever and and at- michael's like oh yeah we do everything you do like we eat mm-hmm. And we shit, you know, it's just like, it's more <laughs> rarefied than you, you know, like instead of pooping, we like release things out of our skin. And then, and he also, he does tell them that, that angels do have sex with each other. Um, but because they are like pure, more sort of ethereal intellectual beings, it's like less sort of animal rutting and more just sort of like, they like sort of like fuse together into one mm. being it's like this like merging this like perfect spiritual union sort of things but uh, of according to john milton yeah who's angels totally fuck. Lost, <laughs> angels fuck and considering the amount that john milton's version of the creation story and of satan in particular has shaped not just pop culture but like actual theology Mm-hmm. In the, you know, 350 years since he wrote that poem, I think it's perfectly fair to say that angels, an angel and a demon could absolutely fuck. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Totally. So now that we've got the big important things out of the yes. way. <laughs> <laughs> Pro-angel fucking and yes. also things about, you know, s- humans creating structures, etc. <laughs> this is a welcome to meditation. If you're new, this is how all of our conversations go. Um, yep. <laughs> we have not actually talked about the plot yet. Yeah. <laughs> so kind of in a nutshell, so the first half of this miniseries, it really, it introduces multiple kind of sets of characters or sort of distinct storylines that are like, everyone's kind of headed towards the same end game, which is essentially sort of in its, in its simplest terms. The book is sort of an account of the events leading up to the planned end of the world and the division is really much less between like heaven and hell or good guys and bad guys than it is between forces that are trying to accelerate the end of the world or bring about the end of the world and forces that are trying to prevent it um that sort of becomes where the kind of line of demarcation is so in the first half of the season the first few episodes we get a lot of those different characters sort of introduced to us some of them kind of still at this point, three episodes in, kind of running along their own separate tracks. When we record the second half of this podcast and talk about episodes four, five, and six, that's much more about the points at which everyone sort of starts to come together. All the storylines start to converge. Um, for the most part, a lot of them kind of, especially some of the sort of smaller characters and storylines, s- still kind of exist in their own separate spaces. But... um but just to kind of like break them down a little bit, um, I think we'll, you know, to start with, obviously, the the story is um, largely centered around Crowley and Aziraphale, you know, so we'll kind of start with them. Um, the other sort of forces operating around them are kind of all of the 
machinations happening in the background in heaven and hell. So you have the other angels, you have the other demons, you have the four horsemen of the apocalypse, all the sort of political machinations that, um, that are in one of my sort of favorite structural things about the book, um, about the story is the way, um, they're both framed as like, massive tedious bureaucracies in which mm-hmm. Crowley and Aziraphale are sort of like low-ranking flunkies who are kind of like faking their paperwork for head office which is sort <laughs> of a, a running trope that really that never gets old through the whole thing it like remains hilarious um and then we have a couple of other uh human characters that we'll get into more but um but I think to start off with I think talking about Crowley and Aziraphale the relationship through time um, in episode three, we really get a sort of chronology from like the garden of Eden to the present of sort of how their relationship has evolved um, and who they are and kind of the roles that they're filling now and, uh, and where they're at sort of when we, when we kind of meet them. I think that's um, feels like sort of the most intuitive place to start. Um, so, so what are your, um, I guess we could take them one at a time or we can kind of talk about them together, but, um, but let's, let's jump in. What are your, Tell me some thoughts. You know, if we, I, we could start at the the beginning, both of the world and also of their relationship. You know, that that first scene where they're standing on the wall, um, watching uh, Adam and Eve, you know, walk into the desert with Aziraphale's flaming sword. Um, I think even just as a piece of of sort of like writing craft and um, and filmmaking craft, that is such it's it's like such an excellent scene because I think it introduces so elegantly both, you know, the characters, Xerophale and I guess Crawley is what he is at that point. As Americans, we say Crawley and Crowley the same, but, you know, I guess there is a difference. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, So it introduces their their characters really just like elegantly and, and effectively, but it also, I think, introduces the the sort of what they thematically represent, um, which is all tied up in the reason that they come together really effectively in, you know, in that first conversation being about this question of, you know, a a moment almost of like, you have these two guys who are, like you said, supposedly like ostensibly on opposite sides. But if you think about who they are within their organizations, you know, and, and, the jobs they were sent to do are really kind of each other's equivalent. You know, they're like, they're like, they're, they, they have the same job in different organizations, um, in some ways. Um, and so there's a kind of like feeling of like, I, you know, I don't know, like just like two guys, you know, two plumbers from different companies, like standing there sort of talking about, the job that they right. just did in prosecutors some way, having know. drinks with defense attorneys like it's right just, exactly yeah. exactly yeah yeah um but also i think in that you know in that way in the the conversation being framed around this question of Aziraphale's sword you know where like the introduction we get to them is both both to their little quirks, you know, to Xerophale being a little bit sort of like nervous and, and, you know, like a little neurotic, a little sort of fussy. Yeah. <laughs> fussy. Yeah. Exactly. I was going to say prissy, but that was yeah. like, that, that's not a good word to use. It's a little too loaded with some stuff. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, like a little fussy, you know, like a little, uh, a little 
yeah, um, a little precious. And Crowley being just kind of like, like cool, sort of, uh, always questioning. But then also just this idea that, that you also are sort of introduced it to the important, one of the most important things about Aziraphale is that while he is really, really anxious about doing the right, you know, like following the rules, like he knows what the rules are and he's very sensitive to the expect, what's expected of him, you know, the expectations. Um, and, and he's very aware of what the sort of, the, the system, like he's very aware of what heaven considers right and wrong and what he's supposed to do. Um, uh, and, and, you know, and that's kind of driving some of that neuroticism, but also like underneath that, he has this really, really deep, deep empathy for human beings, like right from the beginning where where he looks at Adam and Eve and he doesn't think about them in this kind of like top down big picture. Like, okay, like in according to God's systems, they ate the fruit, which is wrong. Therefore they go out. Okay. Like boom, 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 check done. Um, you know, or even when he, even when he mentions, you know, the ineffable plan, right? He's like, I know what it is. There's a plan. It's ineffable. Um, when he has, you know, when he, when he encounters Adam and Eve, He's sort of like immediately pulled into relating to them as fellow living beings, you know, and he sort of immediately is thinking about them in terms of their experiences and what their experiences might be. And so there's a kind of like he already has a sort of like underlying sort of undercurrent of his personality of a sort of who he is where he recognizes on some instinctive level a different version of right and wrong um you know that's based in sort of like in that in that sense of connection and empathy uh with human beings that is you know for him troublingly at odds often with the sort of protocols of good and evil that, you know, the organization of heaven lays out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, like the, the beautiful thing is, like, that's, that's part of what draws him and Crowley together. Like they, um, that Crowley also, Crowley is also like a questioner and he always, you know, he's always sort of thinking, like in that moment where he's sort of thinking like, yeah, I was sort of thinking about like, okay, like, I guess from another perspective, you know, like me giving me tempting them might have been actually kind of good. Like, did I do a good thing by like letting them have knowledge of good and evil? Like that might have I might have done the right thing again, not right thing, quote unquote, in terms in, in the sort of like schema of heaven and hell, but that he also has this ability, this sort of like instinctive recognition of other ways of thinking about good and bad, good and evil. Um and he immediately kind of like sees in Aziraphale like, oh, hey, like Mr. Angel, you know, like you also have this instinct. You get mm-hmm. this sort of feeling. I don't know. Like I kind of have this feeling of like Crawley falling and Aziraphale not falling were not a matter of them being fundamentally different, different, but rather perhaps a matter of just like sheer luck or personality, you know? Yeah. Like, Aziraphale was too neurotic to fall. Right, <laughs> but not because he couldn't have, not because he 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 wasn't aware of the same issues that might have drawn 
you know, or, or capable of the same kind of questioning that might draw that, that drew Crawley to sort of running with the sort of quote unquote wrong crowd. Well, and that's, I think what's interesting is like, they really like it, it comes up several times just in this first, you know, a few episodes that like he didn't like Crowley did not set out to be a villain, you know, like he, mm-hmm. he talks about like, he's like, I didn't fall. I just sort of sauntered vaguely downwards, you know, <laughs> <laughs> which is such which is such a, a good British line. joke. It's <laughs> yes. such a good joke. David Tennant, you know, delivers it so well. But I'm just like that is like so much of this, and it delights me. Is just like yes, peak it's like British, so British. Yes, <laughs> but they, but like they really, they really let that that sort of the ambiguity of like like how how exactly did. Crowley get sort of categorized as, you know, on the same level as somebody like Beelzebub or Haster, you know, like mm-hmm, how, mm-hmm. like, and and it's sort of like you said, like, it sort of seems like in, on some level, sort of more sheer dumb luck than, than intention. And I think, you know, and after, like, in, in episode three, when we get more of the kind of you know, the two of them sort of running into each other through time, like, the two sort of next historical stops, after Eden are Noah's Ark and the crucifixion of Jesus. And mm-hmm. both of those are very interesting moments for sort of a peek into Crowley's morality, where mm-hmm. like he's horrified in the Noah's Ark thing that God wants to kill kids. He's like, you can oh, you can't, you can't kill kids. Like what, what? No, that's like, that's like what you'd expect us to do. Like you guys, right. you can't do that. Like he's, he's, totally shocked and then the and the jesus scene which is so which is so great i mean i don't know i'm laughing because it's very gruesome but um but he has the line about like it's like what was what was the thing that he said that got everyone so mad at him and is there like be nice to each other and he's like oh yeah that'll do it <laughs> you know but like but this sort of the reminder from crowley's side that it's like you know, like, he's like, oh, did you come to gloat? Like, like, reminding Zerifel, like, your guys put him there. Like, this is, mm-hmm. like, your side did this. You know, like, mm-hmm. he's And you can tell, like, as Aziraphale's, it, you know? as a as watching in both of those cases, too, Aziraphale, despite, he's fighting it, but he is also horrified by what God is yeah. doing. You know, he's sort of clinging to this ineffable plan thing, which, which you know, Crowley sort of needles him about. Because, again, he's sort of, he... He's, he's, he has that sort of like fear of stepping out of line. He has this kind of, um, and, and I think maybe like in, in, in Zerophale's case, like that sort of like very, very <laughs> easy to identify with the sort of lack of faith in his own, um, ability, you know, in his own like intuition, maybe, you know, he's like, well, right. I can't possibly be right, you know, so like I'm just gonna, but like deep in his gut, he's watching both things and he too is sort of horrified and recognizes like this is, this thing that, you know, that God is doing, that God says is right, there's a whole lot of things wrong with this, you know, from from another perspective. Again, and I think it kind of comes back to that 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 more human perspective, you know, as opposed to the kind of like big picture creation is a is a, as a moral system sort of thing. He's looking at it as like Jesus is a man who is suffering right now, mm-hmm. you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and he can't bear to witness that suffering. And, you know, that suffering is only like sort of beautiful and good if you can step way out of the box and be like, you know, like, well, in the long run, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But like, and again, and I think it's kind of interesting. And, and I don't know, like, this is 
this might be a place for you to Catholic out, but it's sort of, <laughs> it, it, it sort of, I think, nods towards sort of questions of the humanity of Christ, um, which are interesting. And I think actually, and I was thinking, um, when we get to Adam, I think that's another thing to think about too. Like is, there's a sort of the question of the humanity of Christ, like Christ, how human was Christ? How much of him was God and how much of him is human? And I think is, it was, has been a subject of like intense theological debate for since, since there's been Christianity, you know, but for a long, long time, there's been that question of, of the humanity of Christ and, and how to interpret it. Um, and I think that that's one thing that Good Omens does ask us to do kind of interestingly in parallel is to think about the humanity of the Antichrist, you know, like, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and so much I think of the rest of the story really turns on the fact that the Antichrist is also a human being. He is, it's not just like, you know, it's not just like he's he's the Antichrist in a human form. He's like, well, there's that line I think in in one um, is it episode two where uh, God is talking about dog and she says um, she says something about how um, form form shapes nature. Form shapes nature. Yeah, there's something you know these there are these things like baked into the DNA of a small dog, and not even the hellhound can resist them. And and that suggests that the same is true of putting the antichrist in the body of you know making the antichrist a human being, a human boy. And Crowley too, even in in like I think I think Crowley and Adam and the dog are all really fascinating examples of how Earth and the sort of like you know, things that exist on the human scale pull these beings designed to be pure evil towards the center in a place where Mm -hmm. a sort of fundamental humanity is unlocked that, like, fundamentally unevils them. Like, it makes them Mm -hmm. more complicated. And it does the reverse for Aziraphale, but it's not – it doesn't make Aziraphale more bad. It just makes everybody more sort of – human and kind of existing in the gray. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's interesting with Aziraphale, you know, in both, in the case of both Crowley, Crowley, whatever, (laughs) uh, and Aziraphale, in terms of like, with the way that they think about moral issues, it definitely makes them, well, I think it doesn't make them do anything. It sort of allows the part of them that sort of instinctually was able, was somehow able to kind of recognize these alternate ways of, of moral thinking. Um, it kind of strengthens them. But I think the interesting thing about Aziraphale and, and Aziraphale's humanity or the way that sort of being a human shapes him is that, you know, the, the kind of, there's a, there's a running joke throughout of that Aziraphale has this fondness for, nice clothes and good food and good wine and, you know, sort of books and, and beautiful music. There's that whole scene where, you know, um, Crawley is, you know, trying to like tell him like, we need to stop the Armageddon and his, uh, you know, and his main thing is like, you'll never get to listen to Beethoven again. You know, like yeah. all of those, all the all good composers, composers are, all yeah. the good composers are in hell, you know, like yeah, the only you get you're sound of music. <laughs> Yeah, you get like you get like the heavenly chorus and sound of music for eternity, and you can tell like Aziraphale's like like this is swaying him. And I think you know on the one hand there's a kind of it's like it is a little bit of a running you know like a running gag that he has these these um, sort of very 
like like Xerophil's way more into these like sensual sort of pleasures like almost pleasures of the flesh or, or pl- at least pleasures of the of the sort of physical senses than than Crowley is even and and from a, like a traditional Christian point of view that would be a signal of him you know becoming more evil right like he's because he's, he's becoming more fleshly but i think the other beautiful thing about that and the way that it kind of makes a lot of sense to me as the way that an angel would become more human is that really what's happening is that Aziraphale is has he has like this really unique and very you know sort of intense ability to recognize and honor beauty you know like mm-hmm. he has this deep sensitivity to to beauty and to the the, to the beautiful and wonderful and incredible things that only human beings can make, you know, like food. Um, on the one hand, you know, like on the at the extreme, maybe it's gluttony, but then also food is an art. It's a creation, and it's a way of, uh, you know, it's a thing to create to to give pleasure, but also for connection. Like think about all the times that we see Aziraphale eating. We never really see him eating all alone in his shop. You know, we see him eating with Crowley and it's a way that they've sort of like bonded their relationship. But then also, um, you know, even that first scene where we meet him, where he's eating sushi, you know, he has a relationship with the chef and the food to him is it isn't, it isn't just about the like, you can tell it isn't just about the kind of like pleasure of the taste. That's part of it. But like he's honoring the craftsman who made this food. Gabriel showing up in the sushi scene, I think, is a really important sort of moment of contrast because like he describes it as like, you know, like I don't sully my angelic body with gross matter. Like he all he can see is the sort of like that like human food is like a desecration of his sort of spiritual form because he sort of exists on that plane of like you know where god and satan are sort of moving chess pieces around a chessboard and that's all they can sort of see of humanity like gabriel is all the kind of depersonalized big picture and so so nothing in in this sort of joy and pleasure and reverence for artistry that exists in crowley's relationship with that sushi that plate of sushi like it's all completely invisible to gabriel and you know and over the course of of the series like gabriel becomes more and more i mean he's so funny like john ham is so good at roles like this um but like he's like the pornography scene is particularly hysterical but (laughs) like thank you for my pornography it's like all time all time best john ham line delivery also one of the best line deliveries in the entire series for michael sheen too in the way he's like students are so stupid he's like yes you fooled them all (laughs) yeah Yeah. it's so funny uh yeah gabriel is a is a great character um but like that that scene in the restaurant is so you know like right away we we understand and we have immediate kind of sympathy and fellow feeling with Aziraphale's side of it because it really like I mean I guess, I guess maybe like if you're if you're a conservative religious person who objects to this as a work of fiction I like the the way that the sort of the other archangels the sort of bureaucratic machinations of heaven are depicted to us it's like you know it is like 
it is very clearly like it is it is an unflattering and unpleasant mm-hmm. you know like perspective but i i guess for me the the reason why i feel like that's actually like on an allegorical level works really beautifully and i think is really important is it's like what this story is sort of lampooning or kind of satirizing or drawing attention to in a mocking way is not the concept of faith or of theology or of a higher power or the idea of religion. It's this very particular kind of theology where everything is sort of rigidly bisected into black and white and where you kind of, by you knowing what team you're on, you just sort of immediately can look at somebody else and be like, oh, you're on the other team, so I'm good and you're bad. And, and, mm-hmm. and that's the extent to which you put any kind of thought or effort into thinking about who people are in relation to each other. And, and that is, that is a a way of practicing religion that I think is critiqued really, really effectively here. Mm-hmm. But it I it is not a book or a TV series that is against religion as a concept. It's against like this extremely common way that we all frequently see it practiced. And and even though you said like even though it is a a at times hilariously British story, like if you live in 21st century America under the reign of white evangelical Protestants, where everything is on this sort of like either you're for us or you're against us kind of wavelength, like it's actually, I think in some ways, even more topical now than it was in 1991. I think so too. And the other the other piece of that that I think is really true, and this is another another thing that, you know, is is I think what makes Crowley and Aziraphale so different um, from like Gabriel and, or Beelzebub is that that kind of that kind of theology and that that and, and, and like especially in in the sort of ways that were uh, shown the rest of um, the kind of like heaven and hell organizations is that it's all about power you know so mm-hmm. it's the black and white morality winds up so often being in service itself to the accretion and the uh the wielding of power and the and it be- you know and it becomes a sort of power struggle of which side is going to have um who's is going to win sort of ultimate power which is why you know like it, it, there's a kind of like a, besides the sort of like well, we the kind of like self fulfilling prophecy side of like you know when when Azir feels like we cannot have we can just not have the war and everyone's like no we have we're gonna have the war we've always been planning to have the war we're gonna have the war like part of it is just sort of like you know this is always going to be but the other part of it is when you know as Gabriel sort of talks about like we didn't finish it last time you know mm-hmm. they fell but the but we have never finished this this power struggle has been ongoing. And what needs to happen is we need to win it. So we have to have the war because if you don't have the war, then you can't win the war. And if you don't win the war, then you can't have ultimate power. And that's kind of like on the on the macro scale. And but then even like you know, I think the thing that kind of like from within sets um, Aziraphale and Crowley apart is that you know they are like they are the two people within their respective organizations that they are not interested in power at all. Mm-hmm. You know, like Crowley likes to Crowley likes to fuck with people. You know, he likes to bring down cell networks just mm-hmm. to like, make people <laughs> mad, whatever. You know, but like, but like he has zero interest in climbing the power structure 
the ladder in, you know, among mm-hmm. demons. Zero. Yeah. And he never has. You know, and same with Aziraphale. Aziraphale is like no interest in like climbing the ladder in heaven. Like he just wants to, he want just wants to like do things right so he doesn't get in trouble. Um, you know, but but he's not at actually interested in accruing power for himself in any way shape or form Mm -hmm. um and that's i think a huge like a significant part an appreciable part of what makes them uniquely capable like why they're the ones who can kind of stand back and be like wait a second like you say that you're doing all these things in the service of good or the service of evil or whatever but like that doesn't actually make any sense like there's all these Mm -hmm. other ways that we could achieve this goal um you know Except that the actual goal is winning the war and winning power. Yeah. And I feel like that sort of the, I think one of the things that I think makes it like, makes that sort of side of it so interesting is that it really feels like it becomes about like humanity as sort of a, you know, a pawn in this greater game versus like humanity as this beautiful thing you know and and people as yeah, being like yeah. worthy of living and existing like i i thought like i i um i laughed at the um like so the we and we'll come back to talk about adam but um but crowley and aziraphil like going undercover um with warlock to try to like <laughs> when when they think warlock yeah. when they get the kids mixed up and they're trying to like sort of you know be sort of opposing kind of you know e- cancel things out influences on him and and the sort of fake character that Zerfield chooses chooses as the sort of like you know Cockney gardener is he calls himself Brother Francis and it's like look Sister Moon and Brother <laughs> Slug um which made me laugh but also like there's a lot like there is a lot in sort of the specific theology of Francis of Assisi and what it sprung mm-hmm. up in reaction to that's actually like kind of beautifully like exemplified by the structure of the story. Like Francis of Assisi was like and his whole movement and why it why it popped kind of in in the culture in Europe the way that it did at the time that it did was because it really sort of sprang up in reaction to this um, you know, rigid, medieval, political, bureaucratic, aggressively hierarchical sort of church as power structure and, you know, and sort of like, you know, like money and political power and, you know, control over kings and, um, and all that stuff and, and had almost entirely kind of lost, like it was meaningless in a lot of ways to sort of like the people on the ground. And what was compelling mm-hmm. about, about Francis was that he kind of came along and was like, Hey, God exists in the trees. Like God exists in your neighbor. God exists in the sun and the moon and the stars and these things that belong to everyone that no one can take away from you, that the Pope doesn't own, that don't like exist locked up in some golden castle you know mm-hmm. in a you know or or aren't part of a part of a bible that you can't read and that you can't be read. To read yeah that's like that's sort mm-hmm. of designed to be inaccessible to you so you have to come to you know the clergy for them to like like you get to own this yourself you know and mm-hmm. um and so it really coincides with the rise of things like um 
like frescoes and leading into stained glass and visual kind of artistry of spirituality and ways to like, you know, illustrate stories that like anyone can kind of look at and be like, oh, I understand what's happening in this picture, you know? And, um, mm-hmm. and so the sort of the, the Franciscans and the kind of their radical poverty movement and, and the way that, um, things kind of began to tie back to nature and simplicity. Like that was a really radical reaction to the sort of increased feeling in that, you know, around that time that, that like the concept of like faith itself and all of the sort of basis of theology and all of these stories and everything, you know, of Christianity was sort of being like, like locked up in these golden towers and you had to sort of ask for permission to access it. And, you know, and it was all like, he's like, it was all tied to power and control. And, you know, it's sort of like introduced in the story, very sort of like tongue in cheek and jokingly. But I really feel like there's so much of that in, in Aziraphale, like in his ability to find beauty in the world, you know, God in these small little things and these little, in these little human things to recognize like the potential in a little boy, you know, that that little boy could be a, you know, like a a force for care and, and compassion. But what I was going to say is also, I think like it's a nice little nod to like the other kind of interesting parallel between Zerophel in relation to heaven, you know, and, and Francis, St. Francis uh, of Assisi in relation to the Catholic Church is like, they kind of like a neat nod they're in that they're both figures who of sort of like resistance and rebellion from within mm-hmm. um, the hierarchical structure of a faith, uh, uh, you know, of a faith. Mm-hmm. So like, it's like, Francis, you know, as opposed to Martin Luther, like his he his right, sort of right, response yeah. to what he saw as this like overly hierarchical church that had become disconnected from uh you know, from people or unable to speak to people or whatever wasn't to you know, denounce his faith wasn't to leave the church, but rather to organize a, an alternate kind of like space within the church to sort of address some of these issues. And in some ways, you can see Zeraphael kind of doing the same thing. You know, he's like a rebel within the organization. Yeah, like he doesn't he doesn't want to like he doesn't actually want to leave. Like he's not yeah. like like neither of them are sort of breaking out of you know of these structures. But yeah, but he's trying to. He's trying to, like, using the the power that he has from, you know, from inside, like, you know, like, watching him, like, always trying to sort of, like, trying to push Gabriel and the other archangels to, you know, to listen to him or to, you know, like, here's a way we could stop this thing from happening. Like, he's he's trying to use the influence that he that he has to make things better to try to, like, to show them there's a different way to be. And it, and it becomes increasingly frustrating and Gabriel becomes much less charming and much more just like completely infuriating to watch the more the more you realize that he can't sway them you know I think you put it like we put it before where for Gabriel and and those angels human beings are and always have been sort of like pieces game pieces on the board you know that they're they're just there as sort of like playing pieces in the long, the thousands year long sort of chess match that they've been playing with hell, as opposed to, you know, Aziraphale, who I think kind of, you know, is an angel who's able to recognize that like God 
loves humans. You know, is the side of the side of sort of Christianity that it were like God God made humans because God loves humans. And, you know, and Aziraphale is like, okay, but what if these what if these creatures are wonderful and deserve to exist? What if we just love them and and wanted them to, you know, be okay? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and like that they that humans can like that they that they have they have sort of intrinsic worth and and value and complexity sort of on you know like on their own like apart from just sort of like the role that they sort of serve as like pawns in this game and even Crowley sort of in in a flip way sort of recognizes that like there's so many different times where Aziraphale gives Crowley credit for some terrible thing and Crowley's like they got there on their own you know like that yep. was mm-hmm. Reign of Terror mm-hmm. that was all them you know like <laughs> Like, I'll take credit for it. Like, I won my award at the employee banquet, but like, I didn't do it, you know? And, um, so like all these sort of these, these, they're sort of different perspectives on like, like humanity as an entity can't be boiled down to all good or all bad. And that's the piece of it that like, the two sides of the chessboard, like they fundamentally can't reconcile. Like, what do they do if humanity as an entity is neither black nor white, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting too the way that sort of from that perspective the the agreement that Curly and Aziraphale come to mm-hmm. um eventually is like is that game in a microcosm? You know, they that yeah. that they sort of come to that because eventually, you know, they sort both sort of realize like okay, so like all like what when it comes down to it, what we're doing is really just like moving game pieces around a game that is for a game that is meaningless, you know, it's like, we're doing all these things and they wind it, they add up to nothing, you know, and, uh, and, and we're just doing them to do them. Like there's, there's sort of like that, that sense that sort of like, there's a weird sort of nihilism in that, but I think the nihilism is actually, it's like, not like nihilism, but it's there again, like they're, they're the ones who are able to recognize the nihilism of that, system or that perspective you know mm-hmm. the kind of like nihilism that is really in some ways at the heart of um of you know the point of view of people like gabriel um where for them it's just like this is just one big zero-sum game about who wins and nothing everything else is meaningless um you know so there's a so it's like it's it is it's, it's sort of like framed in a way where you know we're again that sort of like very flip crowley way where he's just sort of like look like if it all's wash in the end you know and like nobody's checking anyway like why don't we just like make our lives easier and like partner up on this you know yeah like why do we both have to go to edinburgh yeah (laughs) yeah like freeze up time for other things you know like in, in enjoying being on earth but i think but you know that kind of like sort of more like flippant framing of it i think sort of covers for this really like what is actually like a very deep analysis <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah. um, of of the the sort of the actual like sort of like uh bureaucratic behavior <laughs> mm-hmm. um of their respective systems and i'm sort of curious about like i don't know i i guess i feel like especially after this discussion but in general i have a stronger sense for 
what it is that makes Aziraphale, you know, feel so attached to or connected to human beings and to Earth and that kind of continuing to exist. Like, I do think that he has that sort of sense of, of again, that kind of like ability to really deeply appreciate and honor beauty and, and the ways that humans can create beauty and also that kind of like sense of love for this, all of these creatures in their world as something that, um, that God loves. But, um, I guess I have a less strong sense of what it is exactly that attaches Crowley to it. Um, other than a zero fail. Yeah. <laughs> Crowley will always do like little favors to make a zero fail happy. So like my reading of Crowley is like, I, I am sort of thinking about it and I'm like, I guess I've been sort of like, not like subconsciously without like totally consciously realizing it. My under my like, my understanding of Crowley's arc is that he was just kind of like a little, he was just sort of like a chaos demon, you know, he was just kind of like a mm-hmm. little bit, like mm-hmm. kind of a, like an, an um, anarchistic kind of questioning guy. And then, um, and then around approximately uh, at least the Shakespeare, by the time they're, you know, they're like mm-hmm. watching Shakespeare's Hamlet fail. <laughs> uh, if not before then, he's like, basically fallen in love with Aziraphale. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like, we'll do anything for him to stick around since, but that's probably not what was intended by the text. <laughs> well, I think, you know, I think for, I think what's interesting for, like for Crowley, I I think like on a, on a very basic level, I think Crowley's like his sort of his, He's most the sort of the most I guess self serving slice of his motivation for all of this. I think I think in some ways is just as simple as the fact that like the world he would be going back to is so much worse. You know, like it's it's sort of just yeah, like a yeah. a pure a pure desire to not have to spend eternity in hell. Yeah, and I guess like that's how the book frames it. You know, it's like yeah. The book frames it as like he likes the world and he'd like to keep it. You know, so it's basically an right. issue of sort of like like hell is I mean, I guess a kind of the argument that he was giving Aziraphale when they were talking about the composers, like, it's gonna be so fucking boring, you know? Like it's just yeah. like hell is not hell is a boring, like a grungy, blah, uninteresting, not fun, boring place. Right. And Plus I think the the flip side of it too for him is also that like, you know, because the people around him are sort of fundamentally like evil and violent and destructive, it's also like way more dangerous, you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. like the sort of the possibility of him being, you know, summarily executed for no reason, just because that's how demons work. And, you know, and there's much less sort of like, you know, like, I think like, just like visually, like when we see hell, it's just like teeming with these like disgusting, like bodies, like, you know, toads mm-hmm. and everyone has like, you know, like warts and, and weird gross wounds. And it's like the flickering fluorescent lights, which is such a great little touch. And it's all, and it's like this like concrete cinder block hallway mm-hmm. teeming with mm-hmm. disgusting evil bodies. And then heaven is like, you know, a blank white hallway in this like super generic office building, you know, and it's like, so, <laughs> yeah, so like, it's sort interesting of- how heaven sort of like lacks and, and like Gabriel and the angels, they sort of like, they lack creativity, you know, like they're just very, yes, exactly. Sort of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which is a human, cause it's a human trait, you know, like, it's yeah, a, yeah, yeah, right. Like that's a, that's a sort of a piece of humanity that like, 
you know, I think in some ways was like, you know, like, like, like God, of the creator gave that sort of creative genius to humans and kind of bypassed mm-hmm. angels with it all together, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and angels so I feel artists. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. They're sort of like, they're, you know, they're sort of, they're following orders from above and they don't, they don't, you know, think or question it. And the ones that live at a remove from humanity never sort of learn that as an, like adaptive behavior the way Aziraphale kind of does, you know, like where he Mm -hmm. almost immediately, like you said, like starting at the beginning in Eden, it's like he, he sort of views those human beings as like peers who share space with him, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So, so I think that there's, so I think that for Crowley, I think you're right. Like, I think it, um, I think that it, for him, it sort of begins very selfishly, which is that, Mm -hmm. you know, earth is both, less dangerous and more fun and more interesting than hell. But I think that he also like in a different way, like he also has the same kind of affection and appreciation for, you know, for the creations of humanity. It's just different ones, you know, like the, like the fast cars and music and getting drunk and fashion, you know, like, like mm, his, mm-hmm. his clothes go through the most sort of dramatic changes from era to era. And he's always kind of mm-hmm. like thinks that he's like super cool and he always has like the edgy haircut and the little glasses, you know? Um, and, and so I think that it like that it, well, and we'll come into this more in, in the second half of the podcast, um, where you where you really get into like his deep, deep, deep r- relationship with his car, you know, and mm, like like how yes, much he loves yes, that yes. car, um, which which is <laughs> which is sort of a kind of a counterbalance to, but sort of like runs alongside you know, like the way Aziraphale is with the sushi chef, you know, where it's like mm-hmm. a um, it's a thing that only exists in the world of humans that he has become super deeply attached to. And he knows that like, if he has spent eternity in hell, he will never get to drive a fast car again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So like, it's, you know, the way those things are coded, I think it's like, it's very sort of subtly realized where like the things that a zero fail reveres in human culture are these kind of like refined and lofty and sort of like, you know, like, like classical music and old leather books and good wine. And for, for Crowley, it's like fast cars and leather pants and queen, you know, <laughs> and like, but like, but it's still, you know, like it's still things that like creations of humanity, like of, of like works yeah. made by human hands that feed him on some level that only exist in this sort of middle space, which is earth that they'll never get. If they have to, you know, spend all of eternity in heaven and hell. But I do also think that like one of the sort of threads that pops up, you know, with sort of increasing explicitness as the series goes on is also the fact that like, if the work comes, whoever, like whichever side wins, it almost like it, it's irrelevant because it means like they will not get to see each other again. Like it's the end mm-hmm. of their relationship in like, not just their like, casual hangout in wine bars bromance but like ever being able to interact on any level ever again Mm -hmm. and there's a very telling scene at the end of the third episode you know when they meet at the gazebo yes oh the breakup scene (laughs) and and aziraphale says there is no we you know and you Mm -hmm. can tell Mm -hmm. that 
I mean, like, first of all, like, he breaks Crowley's heart. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> romantically or otherwise, he breaks his well, heart. But then also, Because Crowley you know, comes in like, let's run away together. Yeah. Like, yeah. he literally <laughs> yeah. is like, let's like. It's like, okay. Like, come on. You come on. Yeah, like, let's get in the TARDIS and zip off for another yeah. planet because I forgot what show I'm on. <laughs> literally, let's run away together. Yeah. Instead of, like, seeing this out. You know, yeah, yeah. So that, that moment of, of. And it's really, you know, sort of like by saying there is no we, like it's it's very clear to both of them that he is ending the we that they always have been, you know. Uh my heart. <laughs> uh, I just love that one. I think the two the two most like heart-wrenchingly shippy scenes in this whole again like in, in the first three episodes are yeah, I mean the one the scene of the bandstand was just was just devastating because it was like like they're so like like it's because it's the first time where you really see like Crowley's the one sort of putting himself out there you know like he's he's the one yeah. who's like mm-hmm. like you know so much of the of the rest of it like leading up to that like you know like Crowley's kind of the more uh, more immediately sort of aloof seeming one and Aziraphale is the one who's more you know open and outgoing um and and kind of like you know, like, he's like, I don't, like, I don't want to give you the holy water because it's, like, it's so dangerous for you. Like, like, I want to, like, you know, mm-hmm. like, don't do this, you'll get hurt. Don't do this, you'll get in trouble, you know. And in this one, it's really, like, Crowley being, like, you know, like, like, we're on our side. Like, we're not on opposite sides. Like, they're on opposite sides. We're on our own team. It's just you and me. Like, let's just, like, let's just bail. Let's just go. Like, the most important thing in this is, like, like my relationship with you is more important than any of the rest mm-hmm. of this bullshit, you know? And um, so that just, like, devastated me. But then the other one that I loved is um, in uh, also in episode three, when we get this sort of, like, them kind of, you know, bouncing through time, all, all of which were delightful. But my other favorite one was the the one during the Blitz where, um, yes. where Aziraphale is, uh, he's been sort of working undercover He's, he shows up at this church, um, to ostensibly give the sell these books of prophecy, um, sort of notably as foreshadowing, not including, um, Agnes Nutter, a bunch of sort of like lesser prophets books to these two Nazis who want to bring them back for Hitler. And then he gets double crossed by this woman that he thinks was his partner. So he's like, you know, at the mercy of, you know, of these Nazis. And then Crowley comes in hopping around like a maniac because he's on hallowed ground. So his feet are burning, which is both a <laughs> Adorable and so romantic. I was like, oh my god, he's literally suffering physical torture for you, Aziraphale. Oh my god, and like, and Aziraphale's heart eyes when he sees him, oh like, oh my god, hippity hopping down the aisle of that cathedral. I was also like, just, oh my lord, just gangly ass, gangly ass David Tennant. You know, yes. like hopping around from one absurdly lo- long right. leg to the other one. Right. It is what little drain pipe. Pants. Yeah. <laughs> while while Mark Gaddis in a truly wonderful cameo just sort of stands there going, "What the fuck is happening?" <laughs> yeah, and then yes, and then he yes. like, and then the demonic miracle to save the books, like, oh, that is true oh my god, because saving the books for him was like that little grace note of ours, like, okay, like it's not just like keeping him alive; it's also like. Aziraphale's happiness is really important to you and you're never going to admit it mm-hmm. but like like mm-hmm. you are in love well I mean this is 
it goes back to all those moments, you know, where where Aziraphale, you know, is like thanks him and he says don't thank me or like, you know, that sort of sense of like Aziraphale recognizing uh, Crowley's goodness, you know, mm-hmm. those moments when he chose to do the right thing or a good thing or where he chose where he, you know, where he he like tried to protect Aziraphale's happiness and so forth, and and I, I do love the kind of like back and forth of like. You know, Aziraphale recognizing Crowley's goodness and Crowley being like, shut up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. you can't say that. <laughs> you know, and, like, and vice versa, you know, like Crowley mm-hmm. recognizing Aziraphale, you know, Aziraphale is quote unquote bad things, you know, which for Aziraphale are, are things where it's like, where he's stepping out of line of the kind of prescribed morality that he's been giving mm-hmm. her. And often there are moments in which he's sort of like, you know, following his instincts or his tuition or standing up for himself or whatever, and, you know, and Crowley being like, yeah, good for you. And Aziraphale being mm-hmm. like, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, if you think it's a good idea, that means it's a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm just, I'm su- a sucker for all of those. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. And it's such a great, like, I think one of the reasons it's so like delightful, just sort of on a on a shippy level, is just like I'm always very soft for ships where it's like the way that they show their affection is like so different. Like Crowley will never mm-hmm. say it, but the things, but it's all it's in all the things that he does, you know. And and Aziraphale is more willing to articulate things emotionally, and his and. And he's just a more sort of expressive person, you know, like, it's like, you can, you can read his face more, you know, like, he's more willing to sort of, like, show and reveal things um, in a way that, like, where Crowley is, like, a little bit more sort of defensive and reticent, but Crowley always comes through when he needs him to, you know, so it's sort of like, yeah. like, ah, I don't care, I don't care, I don't care. But then, like, every single time you call, I will show up immediately. <laughs> But I don't really care that much. Exactly. But I got in my car and drove over here the second you called. But but like but in it like but whatever. But I don't care. <laughs> yeah. Although I'd like I'd like Azir fails also like does the same thing. It's sort of like no no like we're not doing this. We're not no no we're not really partners. We're not really us. And it's like you know you love him. Yeah. <laughs> you both just you both just in denial. But you know you're in love. <laughs> there was a um there was a deleted scene that I that somebody on Twitter posted a. Like a kind of like a script excerpt of that I'm devastated got cut because it was so funny and so shippy. But it was like um it was like an extension of or I think follow a follow up to um the Gabriel and everyone coming to the bookstore, the like pornography thing, where um where oh, yeah. Crowley or Crowley saw them like um or maybe maybe it was in the second half but it was some like um oh maybe it was in it might be in the second half of the series maybe this is premature but like it was one of the one of the scenes where like where where Azir feels like low key in trouble with Gabriel um for uh-huh, not uh-huh. for not having like um sufficiently like taking care of Crowley and so so Crowley like um He's like standing outside the shop window or something and fakes this whole conversation where he's like, Oh man, that, you know, that Aziraphale just, I don't, you know, I don't, he makes it impossible for me to do my evil job. You know, he's yes. continually oh, yeah, yeah. That is the defeating yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Like this whole like (laughs) elaborate, like having both sides of a conversation, you know, being like, man, if if Xerophel wasn't here on planet Earth, my evil doing would be so much easier, you know, and then Gabriel's like, oh, well, I guess we better keep a Xerophel here. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's like hilarious, but it's also like, okay, because like you're you're very invested in a Xerophel not getting fired. (laughs) Like you want to keep him right here where you are. Oh, God, I love them so much. I mean, apart from just the fact that, like, you know, they're fascinatingly written characters and they're the way they kind of work in tandem with each other is so unique and interesting. It's also like, like, I think I guess the piece that we haven't really sort of touched on yet is like, these are like, this is a pair of sort of stunningly remarkable performances, like the like the acting, like the the. You know, I mean, two, like, two sensational actors, just first of all, but, like, Michael Sheen in particular, like, like, I first, I think the first thing I remember seeing him in, like, uh, sort of of note was, um, I think he was in Frost Nixon, but I was also, but, but really, like, I mostly think of him in the context of, of Masters of Sex, where it's like, like the, like the polar opposite. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> of a zero fail where he's sort of like like repressed kind of cold bitter curmudgeonly you know sex doctor um in this really tormented relationship with this younger woman and and just like um like a little bit emotionally abusive and very remote and and kind of hostile and um and like cerebral and kind of in his own world and um you know, and he, and he's and he's like he's on the good fight now. I guess like he plays like this sort of like badass lawyer. So like just like it just purely in looking at like the range that these two characters have. You know, and and for David Tennant, like from Broadchurch to this, like they're just like like they're just extraordinary. My main uh, uh, association with Michael Sheen is uh, <laughs> as Wesley Snipes on Thirty Rock. <laughs> <laughs> Which was a great role. It was amazing. <laughs> oh, I don't remember that. I think I, I think there's some of those seasons that I've never seen. Is it, it was in a later season where uh, Liz goes, she gets dental surgery, and um, when she like wakes up the next day from the you know from her um, painkiller, um, uh, what should we call it? Not. Um, my brain wants to say antihistamines, and that's the wrong word, but it's the A word Anesthesia. where they put you to sleep. Anesthesia. Thank you. <laughs> um, so she wakes up from her, like, anesthesia painkiller haze the next day, and she has an entry in her phone that says future husband um, that she, like, like got, like, there was somebody in the waiting room or something with her at the dentist, and uh, so she tries to track him down, and she finds – this like very this British guy named Wesley Snipes and there's like a running joke where people are like oh like Wesley Snipes the movie star and he was like I was Wesley Snipes first which one of us looks like a Wesley Snipes um, only only you know with with Michael Sheen's like very very like fussy British accent um, and so uh, and he had her in his phone as future wife and so then like they decide and like they're like okay so we must have you know we must have connected or something we must have fallen in love and then it turns out that they hate each other and then he comes back later where they sort of agree like he's like well neither you know we didn't find neither of us found anybody else so we might as well settle for each other and so there's like this whole <laughs> whole running thing where they're both just like horrible and it's hilarious that's anyway. hilarious oh i love him he's so funny <laughs> he is so funny <laughs> he's also a really delightful twitter follow i've, yes, I've learned recently yes. 
Yeah. Um, but yes, both like just unbelievably. I mean, the whole the whole show is just like amazing performances from top to bottom, frankly. And and um, the casting is so fun. Like you can tell it's one of those things where like like everybody in the entire world wanted to be in this miniseries and many like it like sort of extraordinarily fancy and expensive actors gleefully took the tiniest roles like the little nick offerman cameo at the oh, beginning yeah, yeah is so funny and um and anna maxwell martin who was the like the main like the lead on the bletchley circle and has been in like mm-hmm. a ton of other british things is is in the show for like probably a maximum of five screen minutes of screen time as Beelzebub mm-hmm. and she's disgusting mm-hmm. and she's having such a good time and yep. like <laughs> Benedict Cumberbatch is Satan and Satan has like five lines like it's just like everyone everyone is in this movie and it's a really fun combination of both like delightful celebrity cameos and also these like workhorse killer British actors that you've seen in everything that aren't really necessarily like like megastars like the actress who plays sister mary loquacious i've seen in a million bbc things you know i'm just like Mm -hmm. oh i know you from everything and you're amazing and everything (laughs) but like the kids are all new like anathema and pulsifer were people who were like new to me it's like like the casting i mean but everyone is just like it's like so perfect well, Pulsifer is Jack Whitehall, who is a British comedian. He's been in a ton of stuff, like okay, uh, bunch of shows. Yeah, he was he's not familiar amazing. to me, but he's delightful. We'll come back to him in a yeah. second. But, um, but yeah, but really, but it's really like like those two, Sheen and Tennant, and the the sort of, and they've talked like they've done like interviews and stuff. Like they've talked a lot about like sort of like the work that they did and kind of the how careful I think. Neil Gaiman and the and the production team and everyone were to kind of like like leave a lot of space open for interpretation. And this is sort of, you know, when you're when you're writing things to be performed, you know, if you're a screenwriter or a playwright, you sort of have to leave a lot of empty space where other artists, particularly the actors, can kind of step in and make their own sets of choices. And so really leaning into like Aziraphale as this kind of like sort of fussy Victorian and and Crowley <laughs> as this kind of like, you know, like aging rock star. You know, like mm-hmm. like those those things aren't necessarily like it's not that it's not in the text. It's that like it's more ambiguous in the text and the actors sort of really drill down into that level of kind of like the specificity, you know, of that mm-hmm. that makes them feel so so real and so and so lived in and like just the the work they do as actors and the and the sort of outrageous chemistry that they have with each other is so delightful but it's also i think a really interesting exercise just sort of in like in the way that like a really good adaptation of a book can kind of take things that were sort of like like nebulous in the mind of the reader and kind of like distill and crystallize them. So you can read the book and then watch the movie and be like, I didn't know necessarily that that was exactly who Aziraphale is. And now I'm like, yes, that's exactly like, Mm -hmm. like that's, you know, I didn't know that's what I wanted and that's exactly what I wanted, you know? Yeah. And I think it's a testament to Neil Gaiman. You know, I think it, it, when you have the author of the book, who's writing the screenplay, who's also sort of involved in the, in the production, you know, it's very easy for the author's vision to kind of take preeminence, you know, mm-hmm. where it sort of becomes about fitting that vision. And so I think it's a testament to him to that he was sort of was willing to kind of hand things over and say, like, 
you know, and basically like, I, you know, to the actors, like, I'm going to let you do your jobs. You know, like your mm-hmm. jobs is to interpret what's on the page and to create, you know, the character from what's on the page, you know, kind of like through your own sort of creativity and, and work, um, rather than kind of micromanaging, like, no, you must sort of like embody the Crowley and Aziraphale that I saw in my head. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Like from, from all accounts, from, you know, everything that I've ever heard or read from people who've worked with Neil Gaiman, he comes off like somebody who's really like an extraordinarily generous collaborator, you know, and, mm-hmm. and who is sort of remarkably un, precious about his own work you know and i and my sense just from sort of reading between the lines of some of the stuff so the way that he sort of has talked about this project is that he was like he was very committed to to kind of going to bat for things that he felt would have been important to terry and much less concerned with like I want, you know, like, I want all of the lines of, that I wrote that I thought were extra funny to be in here. Like, it's like he, he really wanted to sort of to protect, you know, protect the partner who wasn't there to sort of advocate for himself. You know, people have been trying to develop this book for the screen for like, you know, 15 years. You know, Terry Gilliam tried it. Terry Jones tried it. It was going to be like, like all these different things, you know, and I think that Neil Gaiman really trying to, you know, like, I think it's just like being an artist who wants to make sure that the other artists that he works with feel like their work is being respected. I think, you know, it explains both why the actors kind of got the freedom that they got to make their own choices and also why the sort of the Pratchettness of the book is so well preserved. Yeah. You know, because like yeah. that's like that was an active choice that was really important to him. Like if we're going to do this, you know, I'm going to go to bat for, for sort of retaining this voice, you know, which is really lovely. And, and just makes me just think that Neil Gaiman is just a really wonderful person. <laughs> like he just, yes. he just seems like a really good guy. <laughs> One last kind of like Crowley's or Phil Heaven Hill theology thing before maybe we want to pop over and talk about some of the humans. Um, but I did, um, I was thinking a lot about, um, like the, when I when I rewatched this, like when it first came out, um, one of the things that I sort of sort of popped into my head because I have not reread the book in a while. Like I read it, I read it in college, and I think probably at least once since then, but not for probably like at least like six or seven years. I listened to the audiobook last year, so it's been more okay. Recent. So it was like fresher yeah, in your me. mind, yeah, fresher, yeah. Who reads the audiobook? I can't remember. It's a British actor, and he's is really, really good. Except that, um, and and I, it's hard to tell how much of this is the fault of the book because I haven't like read it, reread it in a long time, um, and how much of it is the performance. But the um, the performance of the dialogue of the uh, the like Asian tunnel people um, oh. is so racist like it was like it was so bad it took me out of it honestly like i I, it was i I almost couldn't listen to it because it was like just like the most like racist stereotype uh like faux asian sort of mangled english accent thing yeah it was really 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 bad which is one thing that is upsetting 
Yeah, and I think it was I think it was kind of like partly in because of the book because that's one aspect of the book that has really aged very very badly is that particular um mm-hmm. storyline and the dialogue associated with it um and then partly that that actor or whoever the director was or whatever they decided to perform it in that way um like lean mm-hmm. into the performing of it that way so like cuz the performance of it was just like Jesus Christ um right. But one thing I am glad about, like, one change in this adaptation that I am really glad about is that they really, like, they very much downplayed yes. that, that piece of the story. Like, that's a much bigger thing in the book, and there's a lot mm-hmm. more of it. And in this, they downplayed it a lot, and they kind of shifted it towards, like, when you see the sort of, like, the the tunneling, um, the people in the tunnels, when Adam in the second half kind of, like, you know, imagines them into existence, um, they – the the bit of it we do see is those two people sort of talking about like, yeah, I was just like, you know, like I was at work or like, it was just like, they're clearly like they're humanized, yeah. you know, right, like exactly, there's like yeah. people who are like, the fuck happened? Like at first I was doing this and now I'm in this tunnel. And like, it's like very, very clear. I think it way, it seemed to me way more clear in this adaptation that what was happening was right. Like actual living people were like stuck into this very, very stereotypical kind of somewhat racist situation by the imagination of a like a white English boy because it's his imagination. It's like a little bit, little bit clearer. Whereas in the book, it's like a lot less clear. And then also there's just like, there's just more of it. They like pop up all over the place. So. Um. Yeah. And it, and it works <laughs> as sort of like a, like, like a kind of a quick cut visual joke. Exactly. Yes. Yes. In, in the very much in the same vein of like the nuclear reactor is gone and replaced by a lemon candy. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's a two second punchline kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And in the book, in the book, there's a couple of scenes, um, that were cut where, like, for instance, um, I think it's, I think Pulsifer is like trying to find Tadfield and, um, the, were they, were they from Taiwan? I can't, I think they're from Taiwan. Um, Tibet. I can't remember. Yeah. Oh, Tibet. Tibet. Yeah. You're right. It's Tibet. Um, the Tibetan, um, tunnel diggers whatever like they pop up out of the road because they've been digging tunnels and he stops and asks or like they like there's a whole scene where like um, oh Pulsifer talks to them and yeah and that dialogue is just like Oof. yikes so good, good cut neil that was a good cut I, that was a I, solid I a plus decision i hope and i'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt that upon going back to that he too realized like oh that was that's a thing that I learned. Uh, sort of. That's some <laughs> some prejudice I unlearned in the past. Uh, yep. Twenty years. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I did. So. I did also appreciate just sort of in in terms of the of the casting that there was like, you know, it's a it's a very white cast, but I feel like there were there seemed to be some really concerted efforts to. To make it less white, you know, like like having like yeah. a woman of color for anathema device, having a woman of color for Sister Mary Loquacious, the little girl Adam and Eve are black, which I was think was was good. That was a very nice touch. Mm-hmm. You know, going back and looking at anything from 1991, they're sort of like, oh, that was that was not that long ago, but also yeah. a very long time ago in terms of some of these things of how you know, like how society has has evolved, which I think is interesting. Yes. 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 So which which speaking of speaking of 1991. <laughs> so one of the things that I was thinking a lot about when I was watching it the first time was there's some really sort of odd kind of thematic parallels to a couple of other pieces of art which I really like which all kind of like popped up around around the same time. So this book came out in 1991 and 
Angels in America first premiered in New York um the first the first part of it did um in 1990 and then in I think 1992 was the the premiere of a play called Marisol not as well known but um really good by uh, an LA like a Latino playwright from LA named Jose Rivera and I they're both like plays that I absolutely love and it's just it's interesting to me that it's like what is it about the end of the 80s that made all of these writers sort of fixate kind of concurrently on the relationship between heaven and hell and humanity as this sort of like metaphor for where the world was at? So like Angels in America, it's a, for people who haven't read it or seen it, it's, um, it's a play, it's like a five hour play. So it was in two parts. Um, and it's sort of primarily the kind of real world story of it is the relationship between two, uh, two gay men who sort of, they sort of split up early in the story. One of them, Prior Walter, um, discovers that he has AIDS and the other one ends up having an affair with like a closeted Mormon guy. And then the closeted Mormon guy's family kind of comes into the story and the ghost of Ethel Rosenberg is in it and Roy Cohen is in it and it's super wacky and weird. But the first half of the play ends with Prior Walter's guardian angel basically sort of crashing down through his ceiling. And, uh, and the second half of the play involves Prior and the angel kind of in this back and forth about like humanity is sort of in trouble. God is, God is upset with human beings because he sort of invented them because he was bored, because angels were kind of static and he wanted something. He wanted, um, you know, beings to, to engage with and to watch, um, who had the capacity to like learn and grow and change and transform. And then it kind of snowballed and humanity sort of got away from him. And so the angel has sort of like, come to earth with a sort of message that like, like you guys need to stop moving. Like this is like, you're going too fast and God can't keep up and, and that God has kind of abdicated responsibility over the human race after like, I think like the great earthquake in San Francisco in 1920 was sort of this like, like God trying to like stop the wheels turning on humanity sort of essentially. And, um, and so prior has to like, there's a scene where he like goes up to heaven and he's kind of like, you know, testifying in front of this panel of all these angels and, and kind of talking about like, yeah, like humanity is like super fucked up and we have made a lot of mistakes and we are not perfect and we are not all good, but like we deserve, like we deserve to be given permission to kind of continue to exist and live. And then he kind of evolves into the sort of like prophet character. And so, so there's a lot in that just sort of in terms of the like humanity becoming this thing that that grows and evolves past how God conceived it as a, as a sort of a, a species that it, he could control, which I think is really interesting, sort of allegorically. And then Marisol, which is much darker and weirder and crazier, is very sort of like, um, kind of like urban magical realism, I guess. But it's, it's set in the Bronx, um, in the like late eighties, early nineties, and it follows this, uh, Latina woman named Marisol Perez. And, uh, and she, like the first scene in the play, she's like, she's like attacked on a subway platform and her guardian angel steps in to save her. And then later in the play, her guardian angel comes back and basically is like, yeah, so there's a war going on in heaven and I can't be your guardian angel anymore because like I got drafted. So I have to go fight in this <laughs> like angel uprising against God. So like you're on your own. Humanity's kind of fucked now because like all the angels that protected you and kept you guys all safe are like doing battle with each other. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it's basically like 
the streets of the Bronx kind of become this like battlefield and these like deeply weird metaphorical characters like like a man who has no skin or like a woman who disappears and no one can see her because she has no credit rating, which means she like doesn't exist as a person. Like all these sort of like very strange kind of like people as metaphor you know, like, and they're like, like displaced and like, kind of like societal outcasts kind of come together under Marisol's leadership as a kind of like citizen army. Um, but the, the, the theology stuff is really interesting because like, uh, like, you know, Marisol's Latino, her angel, her guardian angel is a black woman. A lot of the other angels that you see are people of color and, and God is like an old white guy. And so the rebellion kind of comes about because essentially like God is, is kind of going senile, like losing his mind, like refusing to change, refusing to listen. No one can get through to him. And so there's sort of this uprising of, of the other angels who sort of feel like, you know, they have to kind of like topple the power structure. Um, and it ends with like, I can't remember if it's Marisol or if it's another character, but like, it's really, it ends with like, they, they sort of kill God and like elect a new God. So it's very weird. Um, I love it. I saw it when I was in high school. Um, I was like a freshman in high school and, and Portland State did it, like the college drama department did it. And I was like 13 or 14, like little like Catholic school Claire. And I was watching it being like, A, what the fuck am I watching? And B, like, <laughs> like, like, I'm not, like, I've never forgotten this play. But, uh, so it's very good. So if you ever get a chance to read it or see it, they're both wonderful. But what I thought was interesting, I, I sort of like, I, out of curiosity, like I looked them both up after I finished Goodums the first time and, and realized that like, like essentially like all of these projects were sort of being written kind of around the same time. So it's not so much that like Marisol was overtly influenced by Angels in America or Angels in America was influenced by Good Omens or whatever. It's more that like, I'm more curious about like what was in the air in that time in the world where, you know, these sort of big metaphysical, you know, heaven, hell, humanity kind of at odds with each other stories felt like something that the world was reflecting. I think it's you know, kind of like the end of the Reagan era mm-hmm. and, you know, and things like like global geopolitics, definitely um, AIDS, definitely. I think mm-hmm. Marisol in particular was really shaped by like the LA riots. So like there was, there was a lot of sort of like structures crumbling, the old world kind of falling away. What is this new world that we're in? You know, like the eighties were this sort of like, perceived by many to be this kind of like, you know, halcyon days of like peacetime and whatever. And now like the nineties are coming and things are all gritty and there's drugs and disease and whatever. Um, like the way that sort of middle-class white people kind of perceive the decline of civilization. So I was thinking sort of a lot about like pop culture depictions of angels and their relationships with humanity as being something that like, you know, I mean, obviously, like, we can talk about, like, Paradise Lost, like, it's something we've sort of, we've kind of always been interested in those questions. But there, but there seemed to be sort of an unusual kind of bump in, like, in the 80s and 90s, like, unpacking that in a really sort of, like, gritty and contemporary way, where I, you sort of feel like, like, yeah, I can see, like, Crowley would fit pretty nicely into, like, the universes of, like, both of, <laughs> both of those stories. <laughs> so, yeah, so that was just something that I was sort of, like, thinking about. Just it was interesting to me, like, the cultural context of the world, you know, I think is interesting. And I and it's even, like, it sort of touched on, I think, a little bit in, I think, some of the interviews with with cast members um, from from Good Omens who had who had read the books. Like, it's interesting, like, the 
in the 90s, like when the book came out, one of the sort of things that makes it entertaining and fun kind of and ironic is this idea that like heaven and hell have sort of decided that it's time to bring about the end of the world when like nothing like nothing in particular seems to be really falling apart that actively like it's sort of like yeah everything's kind of fine and beige you know and and that is a piece of it that lands very differently in 2019 as like you know the planet is on fire and the world is falling apart and you know everyone is feels like we're on the brink of war constantly and like will we even have an earth in 50 years and so the irony of it lands very differently and like we're now you're sort of like yeah i could see the things that are happening around us as being potential (laughs) signs of an apocalypse like i'm willing to suspend Uh my disbelief and believe that yeah like that all kind of checks out i could totally believe that you know the four horsemen of the apocalypse are riding you know Uh like people you know building up a war with iran in addition to all of the wars around the world Mm -hmm. and like various new diseases popping up and the return of measles yep yep (laughs) and climate change you know altering Mm -hmm. um like one one sort of um, likely outcome of climate change is that it changes the growing seasons and the growing places, which is going to affect our ability to produce food, which means that famine will be coming. So mm-hmm. like, yeah, I can definitely see. Yeah. Uh, you know, looking around and being like, um, sure feels like some, ho- some horsemen are riding. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's very different from like, I do kind of wonder the other thing that was sort of major thing that was going on geopolitically in the late 80s and early 90s um, was the end of the Cold War, you know? Mm-hmm. And so there's this kind of, like, shift from a time, you know, if in the Cold War, if there was – the Cold War was a time when, like, to sort of varying degrees, there was a kind of pervasive feeling that, like, yeah, the world could end at any moment, mm-hmm. you know? Like, mm-hmm. nuclear Armageddon is just, like, one slip of the finger or one sort of, like – person on either the American or the Russian side, you know, getting too jumpy at the wrong time and hitting the button, um, you know, like that, that was ending. And then also the other thing, like from the perspective of Americans, at least, you know, and, I, and like, I think it's different in Britain, obviously, um, but maybe still a little bit kind of there is, is the sense of like the, the Cold War also gave everyone or get, you know, gave a lot of people a very sort of it created a very neat and tidy black and white sort of schema to the world. You know, mm-hmm. like there was an us and a them. And yep. the us is, you know, like democracy and capitalism and the them is communism and, you know, like Soviet autocracy mm-hmm. um, or or vice versa. But the idea that the world was split into these two sort of like hegemonic – factions that each were like aligned with some some sort of ideological dogma and everybody else on the planet you know had to like either you know sort of like align yourself with one of them or the other and whether regardless of which side you landed on kind of get rough run roughshod over you know Mm -hmm, that you're mm -hmm. gonna you're gonna get crushed you're gonna you know the little guy is gonna get kind of like hurt in these sort of like great superpowers quest for dominance for winning you know so there's a kind of way where you can look at the way that like good omens 
thinks about the have the war of heaven versus hell as has having some potential similarities to kind of like cold war america versus russia yeah well and the fact that it's like like nuclear reactors are involved yeah 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 i hadn't thought of it in that context but i think i think you're totally right and i think that's one of the reasons why i have a hard time granting the premise that you know that this is a a book that is anti-religion or whatever because it's so very clearly like what it's trying to show i think in that kind of you know the sort of the war between heaven and hell with humans caught in the middle has much less to do with critiquing religion you know writ large as a concept or or human faith and much more about our sort of endless propensity to find us versus themness comfortable like our mm-hmm. our desire to to feel safer to feel more you know at ease when we can draw these very strict lines where you know like like that's like you know sort of the, the function of like characters like gabriel you know like who are sort of like fundamentally like you know like sort of a cowardly middle mid-level bureaucrat who doesn't want to know or think or you know or explore anything sort of outside of the walls of that like blank white room that he lives in because it is so much easier to just sort of like we good them bad that's all you know and <laughs> yeah, and yeah. that i think that sort of inherent trait in humanity and like i think the cold war is is obviously like a you know a very i think cogent example of it but it's also like it's a it's sort of a piece of our human DNA that comes out over and over again in so many different, you know, situations and circumstances. And I think that it's that trait in us that I think heaven and hell is a metaphor for unpacking more than it is like, you know, this book hates God, you know, like, it's not like, that's like, that's such a reductive, like an obnoxiously reductive reading of it because I feel like that, that capacity for humans to sort of uh, shrink down anything that we struggle to understand or any person who's different from us or any culture that's different from us into a sort of like, you know, like you're either with the U.S. or you're with Russia, you know, you're either with heaven Mm -hmm. or you're with hell, you know, you're either a Republican or you're a Democrat, you know, and here are all of the things that go along with that. And here are and and all you have to do is tell me what label you are wearing. And I know what label I am wearing. And then I sort of believe that I know everything about you without actually needing to learn anything about you. And so I think what makes, you know, Crowley and Aziraphale and and the human characters, all of whom sort of live in the middle, more interesting and i think you know and so much braver too is mm-hmm. that like that they're willing to that they're willing to look at somebody who they've been told their whole life is like the other guy the bad guy the other side and find similarities is like <laughs> arguably like the trait that we are the most missing you know like in in our humanity is being able to sort of tap into that more you know and that's i think very much in line with the way many people of faith practice their faith yeah there, and the reason i thought of it you know the reason that i think that that cold war kind of jumped into my head was because um we just finished watching me and my husband the last uh this last week uh watched the the american experience documentary on the moon landing um on oh. PBS. Um, which is, I mean, if you, if you get a chance to watch it either, I think it's like streaming on the PBS site or whatever. It's really, really, actually, you know, I think it's on Amazon. I think it's on, I think it's on Prime. Um, 
So it, it is amazing. It's so good. It's a, it's three parts and each part is two hours and it goes in like it's, it's goes like all the way back to the beginning of the space program. Um, and it's really amazing and in depth. Um, but one of the things that was really fascinating that they brought up that they talked a lot about that I had not thought about before because it's like, you know, it's, it's not at all the way that this, that you're taught about this in school is that, you know, that the, the fact that we went to the moon, uh, was so deeply and thoroughly a product of the Cold War that it was the space mm-hmm. race was a part of the arms race. It was a part of the sort of mm-hmm. like, like the, the, you know, the, the amount of money that the American government put into this program and the things that we chose to do and when we chose to do them. Um, you know, so much of it was determined by the, by the fact that Russia was doing it. You know, and then in America, the fact that, that Russia, you know, just Sputnik, the fact that Russia beat us to space. They put us out, they put a satellite in orbit before we did. They put a living animal in orbit before we did. They put, they put the first human beings in orbit, you know, before we did. Uh, the first, the first person to orbit the earth was a Russian. You know, and these things were like the thing, the thing that kind of like pushed the American space race was, the Russians are doing this for us. And part of it was paranoia about, you know, sort of like weapons programs and, and things like, and capabilities and things like that. But a lot of it was just down to, we can't let Russia beat us in anything. Like they can't have a first for humanity. You know, we have to have this. And, and part of the, part of the reason why we landed on the moon at all, like part of the reason why the moon became a thing, like people were talking about, I guess there were plans about going to Mars before there were plans about going to the moon. But, um, but it was part of this, you know, part of it was, it was a piece of this race. Like the moon is a place we can get to. And then, um, you know, on the American side, uh, you know, the, there were some plans to go to the moon, but eventually like they, they sort of like heard like the, the sort of, they became aware that the Russians were also planning to go to the moon. You know, so it became this thing where the Americans were going to go to the moon. So then the Russians are like, we got to go to the moon. So then the Russians are like, we got to get there before. And the Americans are like, oh shit. Like literally the Americans moved up their plans. Like they moved it up by several months because the Russians were going to land. They had like a, an unmanned spacecraft that was going to land on the moon. And they were like, we got to beat them. And I think, I think America beat the Russian spacecraft to the moon by like 12 hours, which is another thing you never hear. So it's like all this stuff <laughs> where like the, you know, like this entire massive multi-billion dollar program exists the way that it existed because of the Cold War and because you have these two hegemonic superpowers battling over who is going to win. Like, just win. Like, there's no win, like, this, you know, just winning for the sake of You don't winning. get the moon. The the like, of, yeah, you don't get the moon. And once they got there, they're like, oh, right. There's no kind of fuck all here, you know? Right. Like, we went a couple times, <laughs> we don't go back for a reason, you know? Like, we went literally because it was there and it was easier to get to than Mars. Um, <laughs> you know, so, like, so so we won just for the sake of winning, um, and, and like one thing that I really like that, that this documentary does incredibly well is that they, you know, in, in the course of showing that they, they sort of spend a little bit of time showing like, you know, in, in the sort of buildup, I think right before the, um, the launch of Apollo 11. So like, which was the, the Apollo 11 was the mission that landed on the moon, you know, so there's like thousands and thousands of people coming to, uh, the launch site and camping out. Um, but there was a group of, um, civil rights 
activists um, who came to the launch site and, you know, and, and were sort of staging, like, giving speeches and they had signs. Basically, like, like raising the question, just, like, raising the question, like, saying, like, this is a great achievement for humankind, yes, um, but there are still people on Earth right now in this country who are suffering and starving and don't have homes. And you're spending billions and billions of dollars to put it three guys on the moon. So, you know, and, and it, it didn't wind up as being a confrontation. Like the head of NASA came out and talked to them and he invited some of them to watch and there was like a conversation and whatever. But like the, you know, this, this documentary, one thing it does well is sort of pause and actually like, and like talk about those issues, you know, like say, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. point out, like we spent a huge amount of money on doing this thing. And yeah, it's an amazing thing, but like doing that thing, which was motivated primarily by winning, you know, against the mm-hmm. Russians pulled a tremendous amount of resources away from human beings living on Earth in a way that, not to say that that money would have guaranteed gone to, like, you know, poverty programs or whatever, but still, you know, like, in other words, like, the attention was pulled towards winning this fight with this sort of, like, you know, this this sort of inchoate ideological well not inchoate it's a country but like this kind of like ideological sort of power struggle and that came at the expense of the the lives and the well-being of actual human beings and so i feel like there's you know that like good omens is like that's that's kind of also what they're interested in you know there's a kind of like yeah. this great power struggle between these two great powers and mm-hmm. and they each want to win and they're huge and they're cr- tremendously powerful and everything they do and every choice they make has repercussions for all these living human beings. And from one, you know, for like you could you could look at the living human beings as like little sort of chess pieces or or peons or numbers or collateral damage, or you can look at them as actual human beings, you know, with experiences and lives who are either being helped or hurt by what you choose to do with that power. I okay, first of all, I really want to watch that. It's so good, Claire. Like, so good. You you would die. Like, and there's so much politics in there. There's so much Nixon. Like, yes. Ah, my kryptonite. (laughs) Um, Aaron and Aaron's husband and I are all sort of mid-century history geeks together. So when they come visit, Jordan and I usually just watch a lot of Watergate documentaries. (laughs) (laughs) And for those of you who are not uh, regular uh, Meditation listeners, if you are new to the podcast, coming to it because you are a – a Good Omens fan, Claire, is a novelist, and she wrote a novel called The Rewind Files, which is about time travel and also about Watergate. Thank so. you. Thank you for plugging me. You're welcome. <laughs> it's amazing. It's so good. It's so fucking good. So, Thank you. Yes. I'm working on two sequels to it now. <laughs> not not right now, because right now I am podcasting, <laughs> because yes, I like yes, distractions. But, you know, but in general. Yes, in general. <laughs> So maybe let's hop over and talk about our um our human or and and humanesque um characters that get introduced in the first couple episodes um and their uh their storylines. I think um I think it's important to kind of circle back to the very beginning of the first episode and talk about um Adam and how um how Adam comes into the world and the sort of wonderfully sort of grim and Edward Gorey-esque sort of three card Monty <laughs> sequence um, <laughs> in the, in the nunnery with the babies. Um, but also just sort of like um, Adam's 
gradually kind of coming into his power and kind of his his story um over the 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 course of the first half of the series and um and then the other sort of human characters that we meet um are uh anathema device who i am in love with um and then um (laughs) and then we can touch a little bit on although they're they've they're sort of more the most, I think, sort of separate, distinct storyline so far that hasn't really crashed into the rest um, yet, although is sort of a- about to, is um, Shadwell and Pulsifer and Madame Tracy and the sort of like witches and witchfinders bit of it, which intersects sort of historically a little bit with Anathema, but they haven't they haven't collided yet. But um, but so Adam, so so from a sort of plot mechanics part of it, I think one of the like. You know, when you're, when you're first sort of reading the book or watching the series, I, I think one of the sort of first kind of like, oh, this is the universe that we're in sort of indicator plot moments is that it all sort of, it all begins with a baby mix up. Um, <laughs> which is, uh, which is always a great way to start like a sort of fundamentally kind of silly story. Uh, but so, so the, the, the plan, the sort of the, the ineffable plan of both God and Satan, um, is that, you know, at this sort of, you know, like they've, they've pushed the red button. We're on the clock. Armageddon is coming. And the first thing that happens is that the, um, this baby antichrist is, you know, is brought into the world and is intended to be swapped with the child of, um, was it an American ambassador in the book? Yeah. I, I oh, it was. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, which actually now that I think about it is I feel like also a nod to, Cold War politics. Yeah, that's I. That was something that I. I think because I hadn't read it in so long that I. It, it felt so topical and relevant that I wondered mm-hmm. if that was a change. Um, no, but, I, I'm uh, pretty sure it was the American ambassador. Then okay, too. That I makes think sense. The, the idea was the you know, American ambassador. You could start like the nuclear Armageddon with exactly. Yes. Yeah. Russia yeah. Or whatever. Um, <laughs> which, yeah. Which totally fits. Yeah. Um, yes, so. Yes. Uh, so the. So one of the things that I. Um, that's really fun. In the sort of like, um, the sort of gallows humor, wacky weirdness of, um, of the sort of the, the kind of the trio of babies and all that stuff happening in the beginning, um, is that this is sort of our, our first little peek at the fact that, um, sort of in addition to heaven and hell having kind of, you know, like, like laid their sort of divine, you know, plans from, from the beginning, um, that like, you know, like chess pieces have sort of been like arranged on earth for an extraordinarily long time that are all sort of like, like the payoff for all of those things is happening now. So there's this order of satanic nuns, um, who are hilarious. The, the nuns of the chattering order <laughs> of Saint Beryl. <laughs> <laughs> and of whom the main one is Sister Mary Loquacious, which is just the most wonderful name, and she's so it delightful. It really is. It just it makes me so happy. But um, but so the the entire purpose of their order for however long they've existed on Earth has been to sort of um prepare things and and sort of make things ready so that in this moment when the baby Antichrist comes into the world, that they are sort of in position uh and so they're so they're sort of a like it's like all places like our our big moment is finally here and everyone's like oh shit what do we do you know (laughs) so they basically operate a tiny little kind of maternity hospital in the middle of nowhere near tadfield and and you have this convergence of you know of two sets of parents and three babies and this sort of uh, 
beautiful kind of farcical, you know, frame through the sort of metaphor of like finding the queen in a game of three card Monty, where the Antichrist gets delivered to this, you know, middle class British family who sort of showed up there by mistake, sort of the, the kind of variable in the nun's ineffable plan. So they get the actual Antichrist baby, who is Adam, the American ambassador and his wife get um regular human baby um whose name is Warlock. And then the second regular human baby um is sort of like, you know, disappears off screen and is sort of implied like probably came to some kind of a horrible, gruesome end. So we have these two kids and the Warlock, the one who is not the actual Antichrist, is for the for the bulk of the first episode of the show, the kid whose life we're really following because Crowley and Aziraphale and all the sort of forces of heaven and hell believe that this kid is the Antichrist. And so, so one of the sort of first kind of, you know, Crowley, Aziraphale sort of partnership moments that we, that we really see is the way that they kind of balance like, you know, sort of like appointing themselves his godfathers in the hopes that they can kind of, you know, cancel out the all good and all bad and sort of turn him into kind of just like a normal kid until his 11th birthday, which is when the sort of all the demons have kind of kicks off. And then when we meet Adam, he's this like totally regular kid who has had none of these kind of supernatural forces and influences, you know, in his life. And when the, you know, when sort of the doomsday clock begins to kick off and we're sort of like counting down towards him sort of coming into his like divine antichrist power you know it really feels like um it's it's sort of um coming a little bit more i think out of nowhere for him you know like he's sort of he's a very sort of like normal human upbringing so so i think i you know i want to talk a little bit about oh (laughs) i was gonna say the dog and then hank read my mind (laughs) dog's like me me yeah I am the hellhound. But so, yeah, so, so, so Adam and, and his parents, the dog, uh, the them, which is, uh, this, his little trio of, um, best friends in Tadfield, all of whom are super delightful. Um, (laughs) the, uh, I like the feisty girl, but I really like the, um, the nerdy little boy who starts every sentence with, actually. He's my favorite. Yep. Wensleydale, that's that his kid. name. Wensleydale, yeah. Wensleydale, yes. We all knew yeah. that kid or were that kid in, yes. uh, in elementary school. <laughs> yes. I also enjoy the kid who's always just like gross because there was also always a kid who was just gross. Yes. Yes. Yeah. He's just like always like like ice cream down his shirt or like muddy, mm-hmm. sort of like the kind of like the chaos Muppet of the group. Really. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. And then Wensleydale, what was it? There was a line in the in the Frances McDormand voiceover where she was something like like the only thing standing between Wensleydale and chartered accountancy is time. Yes, <laughs> and I was like, chartered account. Any reference to chartered accountancy is also the most British joke in history. Yes, it's like what a, what a savage roast, but it also really is, like, yeah. it's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so the so the so the kids, so the kids and the dog. Tell me some of your thoughts. Uh, I mean, I guess like my main thought when I was rewatching about the kids is about sort of, um, Adam and thinking about that question of sort of the, you know, form follows nature, you know, like to what extent, to what extent is Adam like just 
a little boy who's sort of coming into these otherworldly powers versus how much is he like, like the Antichrist? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> you know the sort of like, and 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 I think like the 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 book and the show sort of play interestingly with questions of sort of nature and nurture in that like you know we see warlock who was kind of um raised under the conditions that the um antichrist was supposed to be um and uh and you know and he's kind of a little shit you know like warlock right, is right, like yeah. kind of a brat like you know like mm-hmm. his mom takes him to see the dinosaur things and he's just like a jerk to her about it and uh-huh. he's like writing on the signs and all these things were like you know, you can see how the how Crowley or like the, you know any any sort of demon who would step in and check in him would be like, yep, right on progress. You know, like this is he's behaving in exactly the sort of like low level sort of evilish ways that you would think a young uh, antichrist in the body of a boy would be behaving. But like mm-hmm. we know he's just like a human boy, you know. So right. Whereas Adam, I think it's like it's really interesting to kind of see like. It's, how great how, to how great an extent he is just kind of a regular kid um the things that he's sort of interested in and the things that he cares about and the things that are important to him you know um but then also the kind of like the 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 ways where like he's clearly not you know like like the degree of leadership that he has mm-hmm. with the them you know the fact that he is kind of like the the the, the unquestioned leader of the group and there's a way in which that is is like clearly also a function of sort of childhood dynamics where there's always like in any group of like kids who are friends um you know there there always is a kind of pecking order that has to do with kind of like strength of personality and mm-hmm. they also like think the narrator um the narr- you know god in in the show mentions this and they mention it they talk about it in the book where you know part of that a lot of it has to do with personality it also has to do with the fact that he comes up with the best games so he has mm-hmm. this unique kind of like creativity for like you know like they follow him because he has the best ideas um uh and then also that he is a sort of like adjudicator of you know, of like disputes. And I think like, there's a, so there's a, like an interesting way where it's like, there's something, there's clearly something about Adam that makes him special, you know, but that specialness, it's like the, the degree to which that specialness could be said to have any, to be demonic in any way is very ambiguous, you know, because like as a character, Adam, especially in this first half, you know, especially when, um, when the sort of powers aren't rising up or whatever, he's a kid who's very interested in fairness. Like he's always sort of thinking about, is that fair? Or is that not fair? And like when Anathema gives him the magazines and tells him these things are happening and they're bad, you know, like these things are are bad for the world. Like his reaction is like, huh, yeah, they really are bad, you know, like and we should, somebody should do something about that. And so he, you know, and then he like, he he goes to sleep and accidentally erases nuclear reactors because he can and he doesn't know that he can. But it's just sort of interesting in that like, there's a sort of way I think where the show kind of sets up Adam on the one hand is being like, clearly not just a regular child, you know, but on the other hand, very much malleable and very much like a regular child in other ways, you know? So, so there's a kind of like, there's a kind of interesting complexity to the nature nurture question where it's like, 
it's not that the that the antichrist is entirely nurture you know like this is this is a child who has been sort of like special in a way that the at least the other kids around him notice since before he came into his powers but every all these other parts of him are sort of like can be shaped and molded by the fact that he is a child, you know, like that, 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 that sort of form follows nature. And then also by his upbringing and the people that he's around, you know, so, um, so I, f- I find that part really interesting. That sort of question of like, like I mentioned before, this sort of like humanity of Christ, where Aziraphale is watching, you know, Christ being cru- crucified and he's experiencing it as watching a human being being crucified, not like the son of God and a piece of the ineffable plan. And sort of interestingly here, I think there's a kind of sort of, it's a kind of open question about the humanity of the Antichrist as well. Yeah, and that's I think the um when we when we talk about the in the second half of the podcast, when we when we dive into, you know, kind of the the finale and how the pieces kind of, you know, come together, that that question of the paternity of Adam really kind of comes into play. Like is is the sort of the defining force in deciding who he is, the human father who raised him, or, you know, or Satan, the divine father who sort of like birthed him and then like gave him up, you know, to be raised by humans. And, you know, I think that question like becomes sort of core to how Adam makes the decision that he makes, you know, kind of in the Apocalypse Endgame, but it's really being teased along the way, I think a lot here. And um, And I agree, like, I think they do a good job of like, sort of playing with the dramatic irony of it of like, like we know from the moment that we meet Adam as this sort of like ostensibly regular kid, like we know who he is and how he got there. And, um, and that all of these sort of, you know, slightly weird things that orbit around him that are not so weird that they draw anyone else's attention, but just sort of like mark him a little bit as different. Like we kind of know what those things are, but none of them are so, you know, like he's not a kid who's like, who's treated as sort of like freakish. Like nothing about him is so noticeably different from other normal kids that it would make, you know, anyone else in, in this sort of very small sleepy village or his fairly conservative parents or the other kids think that there's something wrong or different or weird about him until, you know, in the, in the later episodes, like the, you know, his power sort of really comes to fruition. Like the, the weirdest thing really that's happened so far is that he wished for a dog and then a dog immediately showed up. You know, like that's the only sort of really <laughs> visibly supernatural thing that's happened in his life. You know, in, in terms of what we can kind of understand about Crowley and Aziraphale through what we see of Adam, like we sort of talked about, you know, in the beginning, we kind of touched on the dog, like the, the idea that Earth and that and humanity and a sort of like, like developing an intimate kind of connection and relationship with the world of humans is this force that kind of pulls everybody towards the messy center. And in the same way that it kind of pulls a zero fail away from the kind of black and whiteness of, you know, being somebody like Gabriel and pulls Crowley away from, you know, becoming somebody like, you know, like Hester, you know, we sort of, we see it playing out with Adam. And I think in, in a very, in a very nice kind of clear, simple, clean way, like very, very tidily with, with the dog, who in some ways is sort of like the, the best kind of most delightful little metaphor for how that works. Like every time he does a, you know, 
Like he's he's sort of contractually bound by his hellhound nature to do whatever Adam tells him to do. Right. And since Adam at this point doesn't know that he's not a regular boy, he's just doing regular boy and dog things. Like he doesn't he's not conscious in the way the hellhound initially is conscious that he has sort of a demon role to play. So this sort of, you know, conflict between like the hellhound's inherent kind of hellhound nature and the fact that an equally significant part of his sort of core self is the fact that anything Adam tells him to do, he has to do, you know, like watching him sort of like transmute like a little bit more and more and more into like a dog that is kind of all dog. Like, we, you know, like he, um, he goes into Anathema's house, which has a horseshoe hanging over the door. And like, you know, and then there's sort mm-hmm. of like a little bit more of his sort of demonicness kind of like burns away, you know? You know, like it works really nicely as a sort of, you know, I think an, an allegory for, or sort of another way of looking at what over, you know, in a sort of slower process over thousands and thousands of years has been happening to Crowley and Aziraphale to now, you know, like, like I think if they had sort of gotten sucked right back up to going back to work in, in heaven and hell right after the Eden thing, it would be much different, but they've been on earth for 6,000 years now and they've sort of developed, they sort of put down roots here that they didn't have before, you know, and like sort of scene by scene watching the dog go through that process, I think is, uh, is really funny. And also sort of a, like, this is a very nice kind of microcosm of, of what the story is sort of trying to tell us about like the impact of earth and humanity on the sort of supernatural beings and forces who kind of allow themselves to like live there and get to know it, you know, and, and sort of see what about it is like attractive and appealing. It kind of puts a different spin on that, you know, opening monologue that God gives where she says, Things that happen have less to do with people being fundamentally good or fundamentally bad, but rather people being fundamentally people. And I think this kind of like points towards that, that opening sort of thesis applying not just to the human beings in the story, but also to, you know, Adam being people. You know, he's a person. He's the Antichrist, but he's also a person, you know, and he's being fundamentally a person. Same thing with, you know, arguably with Aziraphale and Crowley, where it's sort of like part of what's driving them, you know, in, in a more complicated and fraught way, because they're also very much aware of the fact that they're an angel and a demon and not and not people, is that same sort of thing where like, there's something maybe now about them that is fundamentally person. Um, and they're going to be, they're going to they're going to be people and not good and not evil, just people, you know? So, or, or maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe the phrasing there, the, the word choice there is, is important. Maybe the important thing is that people being people is, you know, they use people instead of human for a reason, right? That people can refer to any being, dog, yeah. demon, <laughs> human, angel, whatever. And it also feels like more individualistic. Yeah, yeah. When you say people, there's more intimacy. Like humanity is sort of like like a race. It's kind of like an abstraction, you know. And mm-hmm. and people are individuated in a different way than saying like humans or humanity or the human race, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and so I think that that like that intimacy of language and talking about like who is a person, who is people, you know. I think that that it loops in like like all of these characters kind of 
fit under that umbrella. You know, they're all more complex than just sort of like the human race as this kind of faceless block, you know, the way Haster or Gabriel, you know, have sort of been conditioned to see it. Yeah, and you also think about like that that first scene we see uh Crowley with um Hester and uh who's the other demon? The, I can't remember the name of the other demon. You know, when they meet to give him the baby Liger, they, I think maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where they have that moment where, you know, where the demons are very much sort of like in the culture of hells, like, you know, like let us recount our deeds of the day, you know, and like Crowley's like, Yeah, 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 deeds. And so and like it's funny, you know, like obviously like it's the humor is a sort of like the the like mismatch or whatever, and also the humor of a sort of like the weird formalism of demons, you know, where like they're demons, but like for some reason they're like rigidly adhering to this, this sort of like ritualistic structure. But I think the other piece of it is that, you know, maybe it points towards like maybe that's one of the ways where Crowley is becoming, you know, like more more humanish than demonish, more more individuated person than demon. You know what I mean? Where he's sort of like he is kind of like pulled back and disconnected from from that sort of like we are demons, therefore we like we go through these particular protocols, these particular rituals, and he's he's like he doesn't identify with that anymore. Like that stuff is like weird and meaningless to him. You know, it's bureaucratic, but I think maybe it also is kind of pointing to that that dynamic. Yeah, and I think that I think it's also interesting. Like I think that's what allows Crowley to be more creative and innovative in the various sort of satanic tortures that he comes up with. You know, like he <laughs> he's lived among people for long enough to understand that like taking down a cell network so no one can make phone calls for three minutes or like designing a roadway to be sort of fundamentally like permanently always fucked by traffic. Like those are the kind of things that like those sort of little petty human things that genuinely bring out the worst in people, you know, and <laughs> and Crowley having lived among people for long enough to kind of understand what makes us tick in that way. Like he has a way better pulse on, on how to sort of like, like, like in a lot of ways, you know, like he's actually much better positioned to cause maximum widespread damage than, you know, than Haster and Lager who are like, I tempted a priest. And it's like, well, okay, great. Like that's, that required no creativity. <laughs> you guys have been doing that for hundreds of years. Like whatever. That was one guy, you know, but like, you know, but when you, when you think about like, you know, like when Twitter goes down, you know, and, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. or Facebook goes down and everyone that you know is like, what am I going to do? Oh, my God. And we all just get so or when your Internet is slow, you know, and we all just get hostile and crazy, you know, and that's the kind of like <laughs> nuanced understanding of like how human beings work that Crowley has because he he lives like a human. Like he lives in that like like the part where I think it happens in the second half, but where he gets foiled by his own horrible traffic design trying to get to Tadfield. Yes. You know, like yes, he yes. like he exists in the same world. Like he's also susceptible to like, you know, the like the fuckery of like payphones and cell phones and things like that. And so that watching him get like hoisted on his own petard is particularly funny, I think. <laughs> but yeah, but I think it's it's he, you know, he and Aziraphale kind of exist in a different space. 
than, you know, than the others do. And I think that, you know, that watching kind of the evolution of Adam and the dog in that same, you know, in that same context and sort of, you know, like wondering like, okay, so, so which of these forces is more powerful? You know, like is, if you don't know how the story is going to end and you're waiting to sort of find out what happens, that sort of question of like, you know, is the end of the story going to be that Adam's antichristness ends up being the defining part of his personality and what drives his choices or is, you know, is his humanity going to sort of be the force that shapes who he really, you know, sort of fundamentally becomes in that sort of same way. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, uh, we have not talked about the love of your life very much yet, other than to say she is the love of your life. Um, so what are, tell me your feelings about anathema device. What makes her, what makes you love her so? Uh, well, Thank you for asking. (laughs) First of all, it's just like, it's just such a great name. Like, it's just a great name for a character. It's It's the best name. Anathema Device. (laughs) It's my favorite name. Yeah. Um, And always has been. Like, that's like the one sort of like, like the the most memorable, you know, like, like name from like when I read the book years ago. It's like, like, has always like lived in my head. It's like, this is, this is peak character naming. So A plus Pratchett. It feels, it feels like a Pratchett. But so what I think is interesting about Anathema, sort of in, in how she's introduced and in the role that we see her playing when we when we meet her is like you know like one of the sort of themes that really runs through um through the whole thing in you know in obviously some some very blatant ways um you know obviously this is sort of this idea of like predestination you know like everyone is kind of like following in footsteps that have been laid out for you know hundreds or thousands of years heading towards this sort of point of convergence where all of these sort of storylines are going to meet um and Crowley and Aziraphale obviously sort of represent and are kind of in contention with the kind of divine side of that but anathema because when we meet Adam Adam is not sort of conscious in any way of his role in this and so anathema is our first person who is conscious and aware of both what is coming and of the fact that she has a role in it. You know, she's been raised her whole entire life kind of on, you know, on on Agnes Nutter's prophecies as sort of her, you know, her Bible. And all of her family's history from, you know, from Agnes sort of leaving this book to her, you know, to her descendants kind of on down the line, the whole, you know, the whole sort of family line has been moving towards like anathema specifically, you know, being born into the world to the time that she's born into the world. And, you know, and growing up and all of the sort of steps along the path of her life, leading her to this moment where she is poised to potentially be the person who, like, averts the Antichrist bringing about Armageddon. And um, and so when we first meet her, you know, she's a little girl doing, like, prophecy flashcards with her mom, you know, in their, like palatial Malibu estate that they bought because the prophecy of, you know, Steve Jobs introducing an apple that no man can eat <laughs> led them all to buy early apple stock <laughs> and become bajillionaires. Um so the sort of the idea that she's um that she's raised as kind of a sort of a chosen one character. I mean it's first of all, I think it's always it's always interesting and kind of 
refreshing when the chosen one character is a girl because they almost never are. So I think on that level, I think she's, she's really unique. She's also by a mile our sort of most plot significant woman in this ensemble. Yeah. 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 You know, in a very matrilineal kind of line going all the way back to, uh, to Agnes, you know, who we, who we see in that really, Delightful flashback where she's grumpy because she's late for her own execution. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, and the sort of the beginning of the kind of, the sort of the Pulsifer nutter kind of family line sort of intersecting the sort of witch and witch finder stuff. Um, which also kind of comes back into play, um, in the present day with, with Anathema and Newton. You know, so we have the introduction of, of this, this witch, this, you know, 17th century Puritan witch who is, you know, introduced to us as like the only prophet in all of human history whose prophecies are true. And, you know, and one of the sort of great kind of running gags throughout the, and there's more of it in the, in the more of them sort of, um, in the book, as I remember, they sort of cherry picks, you know, the most kind of plot relevant ones in the, um, in the show. But the number of her prophecies that are just comically, tiny and mundane or extremely sort of vague and opaque and then turn out to mean something of actual like really deep significance um you know is really interesting and so what's how that sort of shapes anathema you know i think is that everything about how her mind works has been shaped you know her whole entire life by this idea that things can always have more than one meaning or behind every obvious thing there's a hidden thing or there's an answer that's right in front of you, but it looks different than you expect. So you don't quite know what it means. And so her intellect as a thinker, you know, the way when we get our first real sort of anathema Adam kind of hanging out together scene in the third episode where she's, you know, giving him all of her like, you know, occultist magazines and she's kind of a wacko conspiracy theorist and she's teaching him about global warming <laughs> and, you know, and she gets all of these sort of like psychic today, like kind of crazy magazines and stuff like that. She's, you know, like she's a little bit of a, of a nut job, but she's, you know, she sees layers to, the world and to how, you know, kind of how, how human existence and, you know, and all these sort of forces that shape our lives, how they're all kind of laid out that, um, you know, that you can see why, you know, like why Adam finds that really fascinating, even before he's kind of put together the pieces of, you know, his own life. Like, I think she kind of explains or, or maybe not explains, but kind of models to him like, oh, like maybe the reason that seemingly normal mundane things feel odd to you sometimes is because behind that there are all of these other sort of strange forces working you know she talks to him about things like ley lines you know and mm -hmm. and all these sort of like divine forces and that she's an occultist and um so so i think that that like like the way her the way she thinks being kind of core to how the end of the world is averted, I think is really interesting. You know, like I think that it's um, as a sort of heroine who's primarily like an intellectual puzzle solver. I think she's mm -hmm. really, she's kind of a really unique character in that way. Like there's a, a sort of a particular way that her mind makes sense of data as being like anything, you know, anything in this book of prophecies that hasn't sort of been crossed off the list and resolved yet could mean any number of different things. And she doesn't quite know what she's looking for. 
you know, she has kind of a little bit of a whiff of something odd, maybe about Adam, but not so much. Like she doesn't clock him, you know, like, like when she meets them, they're like, the kids are like playing witch finder. Yeah, she doesn't, she doesn't recognize him. Yeah, like even when she realizes she can't see his aura, which would sort of, you'd think would be kind of like a red flag. It doesn't make a significant enough impression that she's like, oh, you're what I'm looking for, because it hasn't occurred to her yet that the thing, you know, the demon thing that came to this town 11 years ago could be this like super normal looking 11 year old child. I think another interesting thing for me about it too, like she has, like she's been equipped, she's been trained to do this thing. There's a kind of like predestination, like her mother telling her, which always feels to me that scene with her mother where her mother is like, you know, like we've, our only job has just been to kind of like, you know, take care of the book but you are going to change the world i like like that's a lot to put on a little girl um (laughs) yeah uh but uh the so so she's she's aware of it and she's been trained and like her her mother and her sort of family of her given her a certain set of tools and i think i think the other thing i think is really interesting though on on top of that like the she has this kind of like ability to recognize like you said levels of meaning which is really important that she has that kind of flexibility but i find in this phase in the first half i think what's really interesting too is that the other thing that's happening with her is like is that her the traditional tools the tools that she's used to turning to the things that she was told are what she needs to use to try to find the answers she needs are all failing her right now you know, that kind of like the structure of like, you are, here's who you are. You're a witch. Here are the things you use. You use, you know, like divining rods and you use the, you know, the um, pendulum and like whatever, like all these sort of traditional approaches to this event, to this problem um, that are associated with like her role as quote unquote witch aren't working. And I think like is kind of interesting and this is something like I it hadn't really I like again, I like it hadn't really sort of consciously occurred to me to think about it from this perspective until like we started having this conversation. But I think like there might be there are there are some interesting parallels between like her relationship with Newton and then Aziraphale and Crowley. And like obviously that comes out more in the second half when they meet up, but I think that sort of sense of like you know, of, of, we're ostensibly their enemies. It's like witch and witch finder, right? Like, like she's, she's the witch and he's supposed to, like, supposedly he's supposed to be there to stop her and kill her and whatever. And they're supposed to have like completely different sets of values and, and all that. But there's this way in which it's sort of like this, uh, ad- strict adherence to a certain set of inherited you know, like assumptions and values and approaches, like the knowledge that you've inherited, that you've inherited is important, you know, like that, 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 you know, it's not that like, it's a bad thing that she was raised in this way or that she has this inheritance, but that what is actually required for her to fulfill the thing that she was meant to fulfill is to kind of let those go and find a way to kind of like synthesize to synthesize with something that had been kind of her supposed opposite, which actually when you think about her name anathema, right? Like kind of makes sense Mm -hmm. that like, that 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 she would be like also turn out to be like the embodiment of like the need for things that have been quote unquote anathema to each other to sort of cohere. Yeah, I think she's. It's interesting to sort of watch how 
how kind of disoriented she feels when she realizes that she's lost the book. You know, like, like, even though, like, she has most of these prophecies, you know, like, memorized, and she is really, like, astute and intuitive and has all these other tools available to her, but, like, the kind of the crutch of the book and this sort of feeling that, like, like, the answers are in the book. The answers are in the book. Like, that's what her mom always said. Like, watching her sort of spin out a little bit and feel kind of adrift when she doesn't have the book in her hands, she has to kind of improvise a little bit until she gets it back. And that, I think, is an interesting, like, sort of throwing her into the deep end a little bit and making her have to kind of test out, like, her sort of skills and abilities and capacity on her own like anathema has to do this and not anathema as sort of mechanism by which Agnes kind of controls the situation, you know, like anathema on her own has to kind of go off script a little bit and, and kind of figure out what's going on in the absence of the book that has sort of been, you know, kind of the defining ruling force in her life, you know? So, um, and that happened, that'll sort of, that comes into play, you know, I think even, even more in the, in the end game, but we're already sort of, you know, in this episode, she's starting to sort of (laughs) spiral a little bit in terms of like, okay, how do I do this if I don't have the book to consult and to go back to, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think like one interesting thing to me that I was thinking about as I was rewatching the sort of flashback to Agnes Nutter is um, this question of like, you know, raising the question of like, what is, what is, is these characters relationship to prophecy? You know, like in other words, like to what degree is quote, is, is prophecy really self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Where like people knowing that there is a prophecy that said X, they're going to start behaving in a way that will fulfill it. Because like I was thinking, you know, like the whole, the sort of, the sort of joke of like Agnes being like, you're late. I'm supposed to be on fire already like what that means is that she knew they were coming and like she could have used that information to escape you know like she could have like she she, in some ways she chose to fulfill the prophecy because she knew what it was coming so she did have the power theoretically to leave and so there's a kind of question of like does does Agnes not do that because she knows all these prophecies because it's a prophecy. So therefore it must be true. So therefore she must be do it. Uh, she must do it. But I think like the, the fact that she built, she made herself a bomb kind of suggests otherwise. It suggests something more like, like Agnes's relationship to prophecy is she, you know, she became aware of the prophecy of her own death. She knew they were coming at that day at that time. You know, she knew that this was coming. And so her, so she did have free choice in what she did in response to that. And what she chose to do was, <laughs> you know, was like use her knowledge of like when they were coming for her and how they were going to do it in order to kind of like exact her revenge, um, you know, to, to kind of like to get her payback for these people yeah. <laughs> um, in that act, which is kind of like reclaiming a certain kind of power. But I think, you know, if you think about it like that, where the sort of, if we, if Agnes is kind of like, like the how a relationship to prophecy really does work or ought to work where, you know, where you do have a certain degree of choice. If you know something's coming, you have a certain degree of choice. I think it kind of like suggests that maybe the problem, you know, the thing that Anathema is struggling with is that the way that she was taught, the way growing up, the way that she was taught to think about and interpret Agnes's prophecies were that A, they're always true. 
So they will always be true. They will always come true. You know, like, so, so there, that's the kind of piece where it's like the answer is always in the book because Agnes always says what's true. Um, but, but in a way, like also where it's sort of like B, therefore the answer is always in the book. It's always set in stone. Like you just have to look for it and then boom, you're done. There's this kind of way where it's like the, 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 the book is an answer key where sometimes you can't read the answer key until you've already answered the question. You know what I mean? Um, but it's an answer key. And, and what she maybe has to learn potentially is to read the book like Agnes did, you know, have more of a relationship with the prophecies like Agnes did, where it's sort of like, I, she foresees an event that will happen. And you don't, you can't know how you're going to get there. Because it's going to happen for a bunch of reasons you won't recognize. And that's one of the reasons that it's going to happen. But you, but knowing what's coming more or less means that you can make some choices and make some plans about how you will respond when you get there. So, so, uh, anathema at this point has a kind of, has more of a sort of like, almost like hierarchical, like the book is more, the book is the power that you, you know, like there's the book and then there's her, right? And what she has to learn is more of a, like a reciprocal or a kind of like collaborative or a more interpretive relationship to the book rather than a kind of like hierarchical relationship, maybe. Yeah, she's, she's sort of like, like early in the story, she functions in, in some ways, I think, interestingly, working on the same level as characters like Gabriel, you know, like she's, she's working mm-hmm. to, to stop this from happening instead of to accelerate it. But they're all on the same kind of like pre-written, prescribed, execute these steps in this order trajectory. So it is like, <laughs> like all good stories, it is on some level sort of a story about the conflict between chaos Muppets and order Muppets. <laughs> <laughs> You know, like you have like like Gabriel and and the forces of heaven and hell are very much like, you know, we do A, then the result is B. We are all trying to sort of like get to this kind of agreed upon endpoint. We don't really know how like, you know, we don't know who's going to win the war, but we all know we're going to get to the point of there being a war. So we're all just kind of plotting along, making that happen. And, and in her own way, that's also early in the story, kind of how Anathema is functioning, which is like, I'm here in the town of Tadfield to stop the end of the world, as was dictated to me. And, and so I think that's why, you know, when she loses the book and has to kind of improv a little bit, she's, not entirely sure at first how to proceed, you know, like uh, Adam walks in and sees her like smashing dishes in the garden. She's like freaking out because she like mm-hmm. in the absence of the book saying, go here, do this, which is kind of how she interprets what the book is telling her to do. Like she doesn't necessarily yet trust in her own faculties to kind of, you know, do this on her own. And so I think when she, you know, when her storyline kind of intersects with, you know, she collides with Crowley and Aziraphale, she collides with Adam, you know, then Newton arrives and, you know, and so she has to kind of, she has to figure out how to sort of confront the problem in a different way because initially, like, it really was, you know, she was one of the characters who was kind of like, marching along and kind of following in the footsteps and um and in in a different way and i don't maybe this is a a, we can sort of bounce over to the sort of the one remaining storyline but like that's also kind of the the arc of like shadwell versus pulsifer you know like shadwell yeah yeah is also very much like 
following in footsteps. There's a particular way that we do these things. And, you know, like, like being a witch looks like X, Y, and Z. These are the only things we kind of look for. And, and so he doesn't put it together immediately when Pulsifer, who kind of is coming at it from a different perspective, like he's actually the one first who, who figures out what's weird about Tadfield, like that it's, it's weird that the weather is always perfect. And for that time mm-hmm. of year, like it's weird, you know, like, like nothing that isn't how the world works left to its own devices. Um, and, but you know, like, but weather patterns aren't a thing that Shadwell necessarily has on his radar. He's obsessed with things like counting nipples and what you've named your cat, <laughs> you know? And so like for Pulsifer to be able to sort of be like, my gut instinct is telling me that this other thing happening here that wasn't on your radar is potentially worth exploring is really sort of a kickoff point for like, now we've got a character coming into the story who's able to look at things from that sort of just slightly off center angle and bringing him into the story with Adam and Anathema as an additional variable that they didn't have before. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And where you know, I think that's a really good par- parallel where you sort of have um, have a kind of old guard locked in a certain dogmatic uh, or a certain kind of dogma that needs sort of reconsidering. And and I think also you can see that in Chadwell's relationship to Madame Tracy, you know, where he's sort of – he's responding to – sort of like reacting to a role that she plays more than to her as a person, you know? So she's like, comes over and like, I'll get you some tea. And he's like, get away, Jezebel, you know, just because like (laughs) her profession, you know, like that he's sort Mm -hmm. of like locked into these like, to like seeing roles rather than people, you know? So for seeing, you know, in the same way where he's sort of like, okay, like, like here's what a witch looks like. It looks like this, this, this. Not looking for like what are actual patterns of unusual behavior, you know, unusual sort of of phenomena that would indicate something supernatural. Because isn't a witch ultimately just you know someone who who works with the supernatural, right? But he's like really, really locked into these mm-hmm. sort of um, cultural like tropes of like bad people, you know, like prostitutes are bad people, you know, as opposed to like Madame Tracy, who's like a wonderful person, like. She happens to make her money in prostitution and in tarot card reading. But, like, you know, like, that's the wallpaper. That's the, like, window dressing, you know? Like, in her, like, she's actually, like, a really caring, lovely person. And so, and and the kind of, like, problem with Shadwell is the way that he's locked into this sort of worldview that makes it impossible for him on some level to see that pass. Although, like, I think, you know, like, eventually he does. But, you know, but, like, it's – the problem maybe isn't, isn't, like, Shadwell as a person. It's a problem is that Shadwell – the person who is sort of like running on the program that is a certain kind of dogma. Michael McKeon is just, he's such a, he's a, just a delight in everything. Like he's just one of my favorite character oh, actors, yeah. but, um, but one of my favorite sort of running gags throughout the series is the, and, and the way it's introduced is so funny that like both, like separately, both Crowley and Aziraphale sort of indicate to their superiors that they are in control of this shadowy network of powerful informants <laughs> and unbeknownst to each other, it's both just Shadwell, you know, with this sort of like roster of fake agents named like, like Lieutenant Saucepan and like Colonel Milkbottle <laughs> deceased <laughs> to whom Aziraphale sent flowers. <laughs> and it's just like, and the whole thing is just like, 
like his money making scam. And so like they're both like like in a in a funny way as a sort of like you know, like like we we talked before about the sort of their strategic partnership to avoid wasting time canceling each other out by sort of swapping favors, you know, it's really it's really sort of funny and delightful that in this particular area, they are in fact actually canceling each other out without knowing it because they're both paying <laughs> Shadwell to sort of work at cross purposes with each other, you know, and he's just like collecting money off of both of them. Um with all these like fake, you know, like household implements that he's like essentially like paying salaries <laughs> for. So that just like I he's he's so funny. But um but but he's, you know, apart from just sort of the silliness of it, uh Shadwell is really, I think, the first um like he's sort of the first linkage in of the multiple storylines happening, like when you sort of realize like he's working for both Aziraphale and Crowley and, you know, sending Pulsifer to Tadfield where the kid is like, like in a, in a kind of interesting way, given how sort of how small of a role by the end of episode three, he's really played like the, all the sort of all the threads kind of beginning to come together are kind of coalesced at this point around Shadwell sending Pulsifer to Tadfield on behalf of Crowley and Aziraphale mm-hmm. to hunt for Adam. It's like, this is sort of where, where you begin to see like everything is kind of starting to converge. Mm-hmm. In the second half of it, you know, things are much more sort of like tied up much more like, you know, intertwined with each other. But right now, as we're sort of like moving towards those points of convergence, I think it's interesting how, you know, how much it sort of seems like it's already kind of setting up like, Pulsifer sort of stumbling into being kind of at the center of all of these huge things that are about to happen with no real concept of kind of what his own role in them is going to be, except just that he's a hilarious goober. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I like, it's funny because I feel like in the books, I actually, I I liked both in uh, Anathema and Newton a lot less. And I think Newton in particular I don't know, just just sort of didn't come across this, the same to me in the books. But I love, you know, I think I really, I really like Jack Whitehall. I, he's hilarious. He's so funny. But he also does a really good job here kind of showing like, you know, Newton winds up in this just because he's kind of like a sweet, sad, sacky guy who doesn't know what to do with him. You know, like he just sort of like wanders into it for lack of anything better mm-hmm. to do. Um, because of his strange uh, <laughs> ability to destroy all computers, um, and and I, and it like it's very empathetic and, and realistic. But I think also there's an interesting way in which, like, especially in today's world, very much different from you know this is something that definitely kind of comes across differently now from in the early '90s. But like, it definitely made me pause and think, like. Like, this is probably a very good representation of how just sort of, like, like young men who are adrift and don't know their place in the world wind up being radicalized by, like, truly bizarre and, like, and completely off the wall and ridiculous beliefs. You know, like, mm-hmm. like there's a certain, like, degree of, like, like, this is how you get red-pilled, you know, in, like, the Shadwell-Newton yeah. relationship, you know? <laughs> And you kind of like fear for what mm-hmm. might have happened, might have become of 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 Newton if he hadn't gone to Tadfield and found Anathema and like kind of gotten back on track, you know? Like, yeah, yeah, kind of like ooh, <laughs> that hits home. 
I had not thought of that, but that's a really good point. (laughs) (laughs) Especially in the kind of like hatred of women sort of way where I'm just kind of like, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) yep. (laughs) I think, uh, do you have anything else for this set of uh, episodes? I don't think so. I think the only things to note, and we sort of touched on, on them a little bit, but, um, so we met two of the four horsemen. Um, we met, we met war in, uh, in that sort of, um, delightful gallows humor, sort of alarmingly realistic, uh, fucking up the peace treaty signing scene. Yeah. Um, and then we meet (laughs) famine selling food free food made out of basically like garbage. So, so we haven't, we, we have not yet met, um, pestilence or death. And we'll get to know more about them too. I do one of the, one of the sort of plot devices that I remember really enjoying in the book, and I think it's extra funny here, is the fact that, like, there's, like, the random delivery guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who <laughs> um, <laughs> just, like, shows up with his packages and, like, you have to sign for it, and everyone's like, what are you doing here, random man with cardboard box in the middle of the desert? And the fact that it's just never explained, which I really enjoy. Well, also, it's just as a regular dude, and there's something so intensely British, again, about, like, the mm-hmm. guy showing up to be like, hello, so this is an awkward situation, but I just need to uh, have you sign for this package. All right. Uh, yeah. Bye. You know, like, like his yeah. reaction of sort of like, yeah, somewhat like, like stressed but still nonplussed Britishly. Let me get my like, do my little job and yeah. carry on sort of ness, which is just delightful. Yep. <laughs> yeah, he's yeah, very funny. Yeah, uh, yep. And there's more. He has, a, I think, a little bit bigger role in the um in the second half, but but is yes. is very funny just from right off the bat. Yes. Yeah, but I think we've. I think everything else we've covered that I had on my on my to do list. So, um, so I guess yeah. So we can we can we'll wind things up by the time you are all listening to this half of it. Um, we will be in the process of recording the second half, um, and we're anticipating probably having this one up about a week after the first one. Um, so you should get them both back to back. You know, if you're a fan of the of the show or of the books and you want to tweet at us, um, there's, you know, if you have thoughts about places where the book and the series are different or questions or things that you, you know, would like us to talk about in the second half that we didn't cover in this one, we're also happy to do that. Um, again, our, our Twitter is at MetaStation100. But yeah, we're, we're excited to dive into the second half uh, next week and... Uh, and then we'll be switching gears completely to two totally new shows after that. Um, we picked we picked the three series that we picked. Um, we had both seen Good Omens when we decided what our sort of summer schedule was going to be. Next on the docket is Russian Doll, which Aaron has seen, but I have not. And then following that is Gentleman Jack, which I have seen, but Aaron has not. So it's going to be interesting to sort of as we go, like, you know, each one will be something that like one of us is watching Fresh, which will be fun. Yes, I think that that'll be nice. But this one we had both seen, and and we're very excited to talk about. Yes, indeed. So yeah, so I think that's all. That's all I got. <laughs> all right. Well then. All right. Until next time. Bye. bye.